This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Thursday morning, everyone. This is Jeff Simpson covering for Dr. Matt, who is sick again somehow. We got a text this morning saying that his lungs were burning. I Hopefully fire was not involved in that at all. But uh, once again, we wish him well, and uh, we wish he was here. Did he have Mexican last night? <laughs> Could be. You know, sometimes those tortilla chips get stuck in your throat. That's the worst. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we'll have some fun without him anyway and uh, make him jealous that he can't be here this morning. Because today, as you may be aware, December 15th is Bill of Rights Day. So the Bill of Rights weren't created on December 15th, but they were ratified on December 15th, 1791. So we'll talk more about that throughout the show. Which state did it? Ooh, I'm guessing one of the 13 original. There's a good guess. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't Montana. Actually, it may, not have, it may not have been a state at the time. Well, technically it was a state, but it, it was the Commonwealth of Virginia. Of course. Was hmm. that – were you dinging yourself because you got the right answer on yes, that one? Yes, of course. Okay. Yes. All right. It wasn't a well-timed I, I email. It, or... I got the points. <laughs> All right, so one on the scoreboard for Sean O'Neill, who's uh, running the board for us this morning. And we, As always, we've got Terry South here. You know, today is also re-gifting day. <laughs> Terry, are you, are you going to be okay? <laughs> this will end soon. Someone will buckle. Actually, the volume keeps getting louder on this song. So, uh, re-gifting day, as you may know. I don't think people were really talking about re-gifting day until that famous episode of Seinfeld came out where uh, Dr. Tim Watley, the dentist, who also is Elaine's sometimes boyfriend, re-gifts a gift that she gave him. Dr. Tim Watley, by the way, was played by Brian Cranston. Yes. Of Breaking Bad fame. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we, we couldn't play that clip, so we wanted to uh, bless your lives with the soothing sounds of the Motab singing Simple Gifts. I find it funny, though, that 10 days before Christmas is re-gifting day. Why isn't re-gifting day <laughs> December 26th? So people are making their lists and checking them twice, and then there are the people that are doing a preemptive re-gifting be, list. It might be that you have the gifts from last year. Oh, so you're giving them four Christmas Yeah, so this you start year? thinking about how can I get rid of this stuff. Okay. Yeah. You're going down to the basement to get the wrapping paper. I mean, you can only have so many white elephant parties. True. Yeah. You know, I apparently was invited to one and have attended one, and there might be another one. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But it's like you have all this stuff, and you're like, oh, it's a good gift. I don't want it. but Right. Yeah. The best regifting, though, is it, wedding gifts. I'm sorry. How many wedding gifts did you end up with? That I give you away three you, toasters. Uh, exactly. Yeah. You're like, oh, you're getting married. You have my toaster. But you try and take them back to the store. No, that we can't take that back. We All can't right. take that. They take one item out of the ten that you bring. Yeah. yeah. Or you get a gift card for a store that's all but out of business. Uh, well, there's that too. So then you can't do anything. Yeah. Anyway, um, I already know what I'm. Uh, I already know what gift I'm getting you, Terry. That you're probably going to regift. What's that? Like. 
it's 10 days before Christmas. Oh, it sounded like you. you wanted to share. I'm just letting you know so that you can plan ahead and just know that it's going to be a gift you'll re-gift. It's Old Spice. Awesome. <laughs> it's really old, so that's probably why you're going to want to re-gift it. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, today is also a very special day for many people in this uh, galaxy because today Star Wars comes out. The theme of what's this? Star Wars, no. as made famous by what's this? The composer Don Williams. Ah, couldn't get the rights to John Williams, right? So we had to go with Don Williams. Well, it's it, it's okay that you're playing this music because this is a Star Wars story, but it's not. Does John Williams the do the, the music the main, for this? The main theme of Star Wars is still in this movie at the end. Oh, but it's uh, this one is Michael. Yeah, yeah Giacchino. In- interesting. Um, somebody in this room has already seen this film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he can't say anything about it. Oh, he can. I can say stuff. Yeah, the embargo Not was on done air. on Wednesday, wasn't it? No, uh, for me it's Friday. Why, why, until midnight, why you, why, midnight? Midnight tonight. Why are you different? Because like all the I reviews am. are out. I know. I don't. I don't know why. Hmm. Mine is different. Okay. Just saying. Maybe you need to talk to somebody. So he's going to be teasing us throughout the program All because he's already seen it. You, Terry, are going to see it Friday. Friday. Yes. Didn't want to dress up, camp out, go tonight? No. <laughs> oh, yeah. There were there were people in – we I, had Darth Vader there last night. Uh, there were stormtroopers last night. Dressing up, interesting. making a big deal about it when it's going to be in theaters for the next two, three months – doesn't make any sense. I, it, if it's in theaters for two or three months, I will be surprised. Well, especially well in the idea that you can go the next day. And oh, I know. There's there nobody. I mean, it's not like there's a rush. It's not no. like it's a. You know, it's not like it's it's. You can't get a seat. They're all available. So standing in line doesn't make sense. So right. wait a minute. You're telling me this is going to be the same exact movie. If I go see it in two or three weeks, it's still going to be the same movie? No, but it's going to be used up by then. Oh, I see. There's a theater by my house. By the time this comes out on DVD, it'll be in that theater still. It's like a dollar theater. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, if you mm-hmm. really want to wait, it'll be there in six months. <laughs> okay. So, you're, I, I did I did forget about dollar theater. Yeah. So, it could still be in the in a dollar theater. In a, yeah. yeah. So, really, by waiting two or three weeks, though, you do run the risk of somebody coming up to you and spoiling the ending well, for you. Well, if you care, then go see it. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you don't need to see it in line, dressed up. You know, there's not that kind of urgency. All right. Some people there are, but, you know, they need to get a job. Sean was dressed up as Yoda, right? Uh, no, I went with Jabba the Hutt. Jabba the Hutt. Okay. No, He's kind of <laughs> slid his way in. Well, I, we'll talk, take, I took three seats in the theater. We'll talk more Star Wars throughout the program. But first, let's uh, head on over to Terry South, who's got the news from around the rest of the country. What's going on? President-elect Donald Trump told the assembled leaders from some of the nation's top technology companies that they should feel free to reach out to him directly or anyone on his team. Here's the president-elect. I'm here to help you folks do well. And you're doing well right now, and I'm very honored by the bounce. They're all talking about the bounce. So right now everybody in this room has to like me at least a little bit. Anything we can do... To help us go along, and uh, we're going to be there for you. And you'll call my people, you'll call me. It doesn't make any difference. We have no formal chain of command uh, around here. So let that sink in. The president elect has no formal chain of command when it comes to phone calls. Hmm. 
just kind of an interesting approach to uh, you know. But what about tweets? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how all this all, all this works. And Twitter wasn't even in the room. So the meeting represented a detente of sorts for Trump, who at times during the campaign clashed with prominent technology features like uh, or figures like Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and Amazon Jeff Bezos, who was sitting at the table. Uh, NBC News reports U.S. intelligence officials with, believe with a high level of confidence that Russian President Vladimir Putin was personally involved in efforts to hack and undermine the U.S. electoral process. Two senior officials who have reviewed intelligence information reportedly alleged that Putin was involved in directing how the hacked material was leaked and used. Putin was reportedly interested in both a vendetta against Hillary Clinton and an overall effort to split off allies throughout the world who would not follow the United States' lead any longer. Uh, Also new uh, yesterday, Yahoo Inc. disclosed a massive breach of data associated with more than 1 billion user accounts, likely distinct from a previous hack incident the company disclosed earlier this year. For potentially affected accounts, the stolen user accounts information may have included names, email addresses, telephone numbers, dates of birth, and in some cases encrypted or unencrypted security questions and answers. The investigation indicates that a stolen information did not include passwords in clear text, payment car- credit card data, or bank account information. If you have a Yahoo account, change your password. So, And then maybe question why you're using Yahoo still. This is the second major <laughs> breach. This is a, the biggest breach it, that, on record. It's, That's it's what I massive. was just thinking. Luckily, yeah, I don't use Yahoo. It's bigger than everything. Well, if you use like Yahoo Fantasy Sports, Mm-mm. which is pretty big, uh, news accounts. There's a financial wing that people use to, you know, balance books. I mean, nope. there's all kinds of things that this uh, this this affects. So. I log on to Yahoo Movies every once in a while, well, but there, you, there's no login. We don't have for a that. password no. for it and stuff. Okay. So. Um, and finally, the average annual salary for a first year worker in Silicon Valley will uh, probably make you kind of sad. So, first year worker, what, what would you think would be a, a starting wage? A starting wage? Well, you got to be able to live out there first yep. of all, right? I, and in fact, I used to live out there when I was – that's where I grew up, was in Silicon Valley. Right. And uh, so starting wage out there now has got to be probably six figures. It's $105,000, mm-hmm. 13000 in stock bonus, and about $26,000 in a cash bonus. That's like the average. Wow. Yeah. The national average salary, 40, and- 48000 a year, according to the Social Security Administration. Another study found the Silicon Valley interns – Earn a median six thousand eight hundred dollars a month, which is about eighty one thousand a year. Just as I'm, an I'm sorry, when I was an intern, I didn't get paid at all. Yeah, I know. Me neither. It's like here's a free T-shirt. Have fun. Exactly. Was it a radio internship? No, here's a free T-shirt. You're going to the remote. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Stand there for three hours. Yeah. All right. Well, are we going to do anything about this here in Utah? Are we going to catch up with? Silicon Valley? Uh, it's possible. You have to have the economy. Yeah, but if you if you got the silicon slopes coming in. Well, yeah. But that's why like, do you, why do you think why do you think all these silicon companies want to move to Utah? Because it's cheaper wages, that's why. Exactly. <laughs> There's a lot going on at BYU Broadcasting, so look out Silicon Valley. Huh? You think they're going to they're going to buy more Wait a minute. What 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 six-figure job yeah. do we have here? We'll get more decorations in the hallway or something. Anything, my resume in. I didn't say there's anything just yet. They'll buy a new trophy case. They'll on take, the horizon. They'll take more pictures of Matt and put it down in the lobby or something. <sighs> those those stand-up boards are expensive. They're not cheap. There's color involved. Right. There's cardboard. It's probably more expensive than cardboard. They'll update the app or something, and that's how they'll use the money. Mm. 
We've got these fancy uh, Matt Townsend cell phone holders. Yep, more mm-hmm. swag. Maybe some uh, spin or what pins or uh, what are those stress balls? We can do those. Mm-hmm. So really, Matt is the one raking in all the dough. Well, maybe they could allocate some of those funds. Mm. Well, put in a memo. I will. Done. So everyone will delete it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Terry, uh, what else is going on with Lindsey Graham here? Um, Lindsey Graham. If you remember, that, if is you remember, a singer? No, he's a, a senator from uh, South Carolina. He, uh, well, I thought he was with Fleetwood Mac. No. <laughs> he, he, he went on CNN yesterday, and it was interesting. He was talking about the Russian hack and what should be done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, if you remember, he, uh, he's the one that Donald Trump gave out a cell phone number. Uh, early on in the presidential mm. primary, okay, Trump went up on stage and, and Lindsey Graham had said something about him, and he goes, "Hey, how about we all just call Lindsey Graham?" And he like wrote his name on a our phone number on a piece of paper and hold it, held it up. And this is live on all the cable channels because they were covering Trump like Jeez. you know wall to wall. And so he then Lindsey Graham put out a video of him like hitting his cell phone with a golf club and then a baseball bat or something. It just <laughs> I, the whole thing was weird. So they're not friends, but. Okay. Gee, you know, and, and who is he friends with? Understood. Trump is the president-elect, and so Lindsey Graham's like, we need to work on this problem. And so mm-hmm. they're talking about it. So play clip one. He's talking about how the Russians should be punished. We know they interfered in our elections. We know, you know, whether you like John Podesta or not, he's an American. And it could be us tomorrow. It could be Banyan if we take on the Chinese and the Iranians. So I don't know what their motive was, but here's what happened. Most of the information that was hacked into was designed to hurt Clinton not going after Trump, but it could be us the next time. This is not a Republican Democratic issue. I want to punish them for interfering in our elections, trying to destabilize the entire world, Democratic uh, movements throughout the world. And if you don't, the the Chinese and the Iranians are going to see this as weakness, and they'll come after us when we take them on. So what, what evidence was there that they did this? What do you mean? Evidence that the Russians actually were involved in the election. The, there's like 15 intelligence agencies who are okay. talking about this. That's why he's talking about it. He sits on the Senate intelligence committees. They're okay. talking about it. So, I mean, he has he has some knowledge that he can't necessarily share. That's yeah, the hard part about okay. this is they're not just coming out with a map saying, here's all this. And if they did, it's all this you know, looking at server traffic and things like that to find so, evidence to f- track it back to Russia. And what he's saying is that this this is more important than party politics. This is the fact that our election was manipulated in some way. Hmm. And they're not talking about getting into voting machines and make you know casting votes a different way. Just by hmm. flooding the the news stream with with other junk, just other you know fake news as we as it's been talked about. But even beyond that, they have groups that get into comment sections of uh, prominent articles and just cause problems. Right? Do people they, actually read the comment section. Yes, they do quite a bit, and they get, they go in and they they they'll do like positive and they'll do negative and they'll they'll just kind of mix it up just to cause contention, just to cause problems that way. And you do it enough, and it could you know, and apparently. They were doing things of this nature, and to what extent, we don't know, but it needs to be investigated. And he's saying it goes beyond party politics. This is an American problem we need to look at because he said this time it was the Democrats. Next time Mm. it could be the Republicans. You know, maybe some of those voting machines were infused with uh, ricin. No. Like like on that show Designated Survivor with Keeper Sutherland. Your favorite show isn't real, so it's okay. And that was only like in Tennessee or whatever. Neither was 24, I hate to tell you. Wait, 
so you're saying there's no counter-terrorist unit? There's no CTU? Nope. No, sorry. I used to have that ringtone on my phone. I still do. Anyway, so he talked about punishment for Russians. What form does that punishment take? Well, it goes back to sanctions and things of that nature. And I don't know. It was mm. it was part. Uh, he talked about how it was part of the Republican Party platform going into the convention, and they took it out by request of Donald Trump. And so that's why they're like, "What's going on?" And let's let's Ooh. let's look into this situation more. Conspiracy theory. Well, not even that. Just just the idea that it needs to be more of a uh, a hard look at this to to see is our election process is it secure or do we you know what do we need to do to make it so that nobody else can interfere, hmm. get their hands in there and you know mix it up. But nobody else is being blamed other than the Russians. Well, who else would do it? Who hmm. else is capable of doing it? Canadians. Okay, could be the Canadians. Mm. It just I, really, he thinks that there just needs to be an, an investigation. There's some pushback that there shouldn't be an investigation. He's trying to say there really needs to be a look at this. So They're that's, doing that was it his point. to boost their own economy, which is why they keep inviting us to the north because of the results of the election. Okay, I'll go north. <laughs> When after winter, when it gets warmer, yes. Okay. Anyway, nice, might, I need some maple syrup <laughs> and some hockey. We might want to move on to a different subject before we get an email or a phone call. Or uh, yeah, we don't want to get in trouble. We just want to have some fun today. You know, another interesting topic that uh, we're going to be covering here in just a few minutes is artificial intelligence. And I'm not talking about that movie with Hale, Haley Joel Osment. One of the most depressing movies ever made. No, I'm talking about uh, an article that was put out by Aaron Hintza, who will be joining us here in a few minutes and talking to us more about uh, the current state of, of AI and, and where things are headed. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll, we'll start that discussion with him. This is the Matt Townsend Show, Dr. Mattless today, but that's okay. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, artificial intelligence development has come a long way over the past few years, and some are wondering what could be next. In October, the White House released a report expressing their expectation that machines will reach and exceed human performance or more and more on more and more tasks in the next 20 years. And here with us today is Assistant Professor Arnd Hintza. Uh, Professor Hintza, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, great. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. So tell us a little bit more about this report that just came out from the White House talking about uh, artificial intelligence. Yeah. So, I mean, the White House report is kind of addressing um, future challenges and future um, technology development in artificial intelligence research. And um, the, the interesting thing is that the White House report picked out two major topics. One is machine learning and the other one is what's called deep learning. Both are methods to basically build machines that either classify or predict the future better. And um, that, is, that is sort of their key 
target or their, their future prediction about AI. And that's actually fairly interesting to me because that that is not what I'm doing, unfortunately. Um, I'm working on uh, evolution of artificial intelligence. That means that I'm interested in machines that, yeah, um, exert the uh, cognitive abilities that you and I have. And um, I saw this discrepancy, and then I wrote a blog post about these four types of intelligence. So, yeah, explain the difference between my vision and the White House report. Sure. In your article, you mentioned the, the AI that they uh, mentioned in their report was the, the boring kind of AI. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to point out that when I say boring, then it, of course, means boring to me. Um, sure. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, research that is that is done on, on uh, artificial intelligence research, particularly deep learning, machine learning, is absolutely marvelous and awesome, okay? So, I mean, if you think about theory detecting your voice or self-driving cars or what is it, Google Alpha Go beating um, um, the best Go player or Watson uh, winning on Jeopardy. These are amazing machines. Okay, don't get me wrong, yeah? But... Um, what, what I'm, I'm really interested in is I'm sort of this child from the 70s when, when Star Wars was around in the cinemas, and I was like deeply impressed by those machines, like R2-D2 or C-3PO, and I was thinking, oh, this is, this is the AI that I would like to research, sentient machines. And um, my point of view is that the, the current research in, in yeah, deep learning or machine learning isn't getting us to these machines. Yeah. That was my co Yeah. So uh, in a little bit, I don't know if we'll do it this segment or the next segment, but I do want to get into uh, the different types of AI that you mentioned in your article. But what are just some examples of, of these, more examples of these uh, robots and how they've evolved over time? You mentioned, you know, self-driving cars and, uh, you know, winning on Jeopardy. But what are what are some other examples that you can mention? Yeah, so um, I think it all started with um, a paper that Rodney Brooks wrote about representations. And his paper was basically saying intelligence without representations. Because what, what he understood is that when we build robots, we are really, really bad at making them smart. So, hmm. um, and smart means knowing something about the environment. If you have an industry robot that is in a production line, then this robot is not reacting on anything. It's just sort of doing its program. Right. Yeah. But um, even if it has to react to something, oh, the, the uh, bottle fell over, I have to, you know, turn it upside down or move it around. Even the simplest things require you to have some profound understanding of the environment and, and the world in it. And we're really bad in building this. So basically he said, oh, we should only build machines that don't have representations or only form very, very rudimentary ones, meaning they have little information about the, the world around them. And it's really interesting to see because all the machines that we might now have are either very, very um, um, well-trained expert systems. For example, Watson, right, has a very, very large database. And at the same time, it's really only an input-output machine. You tell it something, it gives you the answer. And if you answer it again and again and again, it would give you the same answer over and over again. It's not creating a, a... insight about the environment this, the, the machine is in, or um, Google AlphaGo or chess computers will, will be exactly reproducible machines that don't take past experiences into their account. And the, the only step that is sort of exceeding this is self-driving cars already, because a self-driving car has to, at least for a small time window, take the past into account. Where is the car coming from? Where is the car going to? Is this car changing lanes and so forth? But this is a very, very short peak into the past. And in order to form 
these type 2 or type 3 intelligences that I was talking about, we have to build machines that think much more uh, about the past and integrate information from the past into current decisions. And yeah, the, the idea was that these machines that we currently have don't do this, and we should actually focus on machines that can integrate information about the past to make progress in this dimension. Mm. Mm. Now, you know, another example that, that you mentioned is uh, r- robots that are being used at Amazon to be a little more efficient in in packaging and, and items yeah. per hour that, they, that yeah. they put together. So what do you say to people out there who maybe work for Amazon or maybe a company like Amazon – that uh, that might be afraid for their job or worried that uh, you know they're going to be pushed away because of of these robots. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question because um, uh, I mean we of course getting better with automation and of course we are getting better um, with with machines and of course I mean what is it uh, Uber just bought um, a friend of mine Jeff Clunes. Um, uh, artificial intelligence um, vision uh, uh, system for them to actually now quotation mark replace Uber drivers with self-driving Uber drivers. Right. right? Yeah. It basically means a large degree of people just get out of job right there. And um, the answer to this, honestly, is not necessarily um, a change in how we actually deal with production. It is probably a change in how we deal with um, redistributing wealth in our society. Um, because we cannot stop automation. This is, this is a technological process that we will have and we will be able to replace more and more things with machines. The question is, how do we deal with this as a society? And that's why I think it's a sociological problem, not necessarily a technological one. Right. You know, there is one job that I have that I wouldn't mind a robot replacing me with, and that is vacuuming my house. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yes, yeah. I mean, the, the nice thing is that, of course, all these technologies, um, in theory at least, um, free us from those duties that we don't want to do, right? And what what it creates is it creates a free time that we have to spend now, okay? And yes, for a large degree, we use entertainment to distract us, but at the same time, I think we have to find ways to fill our lives with more meaningful content. I mean, um, it's, it's so ironic, but um, one of these uh, mottos from Star Trek, right? I mean, um, since we talk about AI, it's really easy to lend ourselves to um, sci-fi movies or sci-fi sure. movies. But of course, um, in Star Trek, um, what is it, the, the Picard at some point says, you know what, we don't have money on Earth. We, we dedicate our lives for pursuit of enlightenment and art. And um, I think what, what, what at least Gene Roddenberry at this point actually realized that in the future, we have so much free time that we don't know what to do with it. Mm. And of course, you know, we have to dedicate ourselves to some cause. And enlightenment, meaning study or research or art, um, are those fields that can that we can pursue. But at the same time, I think this is also very important. We, we have to redistribute wealth. We cannot have um, make machines, a few people richer and richer and richer, and the rest gets poorer and has no, no time to spend, uh, sorry, no money to spend and fulfill their dreams. So we have to actually at some point also deal with this. But again, this is, this is a sociological issue, not necessarily a technological one. Yeah. You know, and you mentioned you mentioned AI in, in pop culture with yep. Star Trek and, you know, there's that new show uh, Westworld, which is based yep. on an old Michael Crichton novel. Um, and so it's, it seems to be really popular right now to to have these robots and, and just imagine what that future might look like. What, you know, Hollywood does a great job of making us fearful 
of AI going forward in the future and, and the dangers that come along with that. You know, Jurassic Park comes to mind. Um, what, uh, what, in your opinion, are are these dangers or are these fears that we have about AI going forward? Are they rational? Or are they more irrational? Um, that's, this is a really interesting question um, because. I think, I mean, a, a, a healthy degree of fear is something that we should not shed, right? And at the same time, it goes along with curiosity, right? What is this technology that we are getting? What is this thing that we are doing in the future? And I think the, the biggest danger is that we are doing things that we don't, cannot predict or that are so complicated or complex that we don't understand. them. And um, if you look back at the big uh, disasters of the last couple of 50 years or something like that, then usually they happened when we create complex systems that are having lots and lots of levels of interactions, but we don't see through them. We don't fully understand them. For example, I mean, Chernobyl is, I think, one of the better examples, right? There's, when you look at the accident report, what you'll find is that there are little accidents that by themselves don't matter a lot, but they accumulate to get this completely disastrous outcome. And I think um, the, same, the same thing is true for intelligence. Let's imagine you sit down with a team of computer programmers and you let them code lots and lots of rules and, and uh, uh, sub-modules that all compound to control this artificial intelligence, let's say. What you're creating is a very complex system that you might understand the details about, but not how it interacts on a complex level. And what comes out of it is something that's uncontrollable or unpredictable anymore. Um, and I mean, again, uh, going back to, to sci-fi, I think um, the 2001 movie from Kubrick, where Hell the Robot actually mm. draws wrong conclusions, is a perfect example of a computer system that was designed from the bottom up and, cast, uh, and actually results in something that is absolutely undesired, right? Hell has this statement in it that says, you are unfailable, and then something fails. And from this discrepancy between something failing and having a, a basic rule that says you cannot fail, Hell concludes that the humans must be wrong and then start killing them. And this is sort of, I think, a very honest fear in design computer system. And that's why I think also what, what, what I'm doing and lots of my colleagues do, using evolution might be a solution to exactly that problem. Because what we do is, instead of actually sitting down and writing computer systems from the bottom up, we create systems that can change over time according to the rules of the Zenian evolution. And what happens is that, of course, they become better and better and better. But at the same time, they have been tested against thousands of test cases because the final produced AI literally spends lifetimes being tested. And at the same time, if you think about it, uh, the, the, the things around you that you actually trust, they are also evolved entities. We have, I mean, yes, we can argue that we don't trust humans so much, but at the same time, we have a profound trust for humans. And as much as we can trust a human, I think we can also trust an evolved system. Interesting. So that's why the, the idea is to use evolution might at least mitigate that problem quite a bit. So you bring up a good example in, in 2001. That's, that's my fear right there is, is having a howl in this radio yeah. studio saying, you know, I don't think you should do that, Jeff. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I mean, think about it, right? Um, you have colleagues around you and you do not have that fear of happening. At the same time, we have people that absolutely fall outside of society and are, uh, 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 let's say, mentally disturbed for, for the lack of a better analogy. But, I mean, first of all, we think that some of them can be treated. But at the same time, it's not a very profound fear. It is something that happens really rarely. And 
Um, and the same thing, I would argue that if you have an evolved robot around you, well, then this evolved robot would probably behave much more like a human and is much more grounded into the actual reality and will not, will not sort of have this, this um, imperative that says you are without fail. I think a, a evolved robot very well knows that it could fail. And therefore, it's something that's a much safer thing to interact with. Even though it might not be driving as well a car as a sort of self-driving car right now, but at the same time, it will, be, it will offer you as a much better dimension, namely that the interaction is much more human, much more, much more intelligent, so to speak, and much more intuitive. I guess. Mm. You know, uh, one of my favorite quotes, we've been talking about movies a little bit, is comes from Jeff Goldblum in the movie Jurassic Park, where he says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they nobody stopped to think if they should. And I wonder, you know, a lot of interesting things are happening, obviously, and, and scientists are stretching the, the boundaries of, of what we thought was even possible. How many of these these uh, these things are... Are things that we really need versus how much are just, you know, indulging their curiosity to see if they can actually accomplish it? In, in other words, how many of these things are actually fulfilling needs versus just, you know, niceties or necessities? You mentioned the self-driving car. Is that something that we really need? And how does that help um, us, you know? Yeah, um, let's, let's, let's make a quick distinction between um, application and industry and actual pure research, okay? Because um, the first thing, the question is, do we need this product, right? And I think the answer is, if it sells, well, then we're good with it. It's, it's fine. And then we can question the ethics of companies about selling products that we might not need. Um, but at the same time... Um, Let's think about sort of the science aspect of this, right? I mean, when we try to understand intelligence, well, in, in my case, what I try to understand is how actual intelligence systems, or in this case, organisms, evolve so that I can recreate the circumstances in the computer simulation for them to evolve similar cognitability. And that in itself is, is just an academic pursuit. And I don't think that we should put an ethical or moral value on on scientific pursuit for knowledge. This is something that we do in order to understand something. I, at the same time, very much agree that not every research that we do just because it entertains our curiosity should ultimately turn into a product and should be applied. So to, to give you a much more drastic example, I think it was absolutely crucial to invent uh, nuclear fusion. Right? This is a scientific mm. um, endeavor that we should have should have done. This is something that's a very valuable insight into how our reality works or how our universe works. At the same time, dropping the bomb on Hiroshima is an extremely ethical and very involved question. But at the same time, this is a question that probably could not have been made by science by itself. This is, again, a social, social or uh, in this case, a political question. Should we do this or shouldn't we do this? Right. So, that's that's why I mean I'm, I'm a little bit torn there because honestly I think that um, the pursuit of intellectual uh, knowledge and science is a very very important thing and we should do it by all means. At the same time, I'm also very aware that um, the more we get into applications of these things, well, suddenly these these uh, um, robots, for example, are not just uh, um, scientific experiments anymore. These things now suddenly interact with our society, and then we have to have a very very important discussion about what we want to do with them, or would we allow them, or um, to, to sort of spin this further. I mean, this is this 
fourth type of intelligence I was writing about um, that goes towards consciousness, right? Let's imagine you have a conscious machine. I mean, in, um, the thing of consciousness is a fairly con- uh, contrived or, or highly debated term, but let's imagine you just have a machine that is self-aware, okay? That this is a little bit less, less contested than conscious, okay? But let's imagine you have a machine that's self-aware. And now you ask the machine to actually do your bidding or you force it to do your bidding. Technically, what you're creating is just an artificial slave. And an artificial slave is something that we absolutely don't want to have because slavery was a terrible idea in the first place. Right. So suddenly, just because we can create, maybe not now, but maybe in 150 years, machines that are self-aware doesn't necessarily imply that they are going to do, that they are going to do our bidding. I think this is a very wrong thing to ask them. And then suddenly we have to come into a negotiation with them and say, oh, you can do this, I can do that for you, or whatever happens. But again, there's this discrepancy between scientific pursuit and, yeah, real-world application, which I, I absolutely agree that that needs to have a um, discussion about the morale in it. And that's where Hal comes in. Well, Professor yeah. Hinsa, let's let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to continue this discussion with you and hear about more about the other different types of, of artificial intelligence. His name is Arnd Hinsa, and uh, he is the assistant professor of uh, at Michigan State in biology and computer science and engineering. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, before the break, we were speaking, and we're still speaking, with uh, Professor Arnd Hinsa, who is the Assistant Professor of Integrative Biology and Computer Science and Engineering at Michigan State University. He researches the evolution of natural and artificial intelligence and works with computational modeling to understand what causes intelligence. Uh, Professor Hinsa, thank, uh, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Great, thank you. So just before the break, you mentioned one of the four types of, of uh, AI that, um, that you bring up in your article, which is self-aware artificial intelligence. Can you tell us more about the other three uh, that you mentioned in your article? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's all basically founded in this, in this notion of representations. Um, the, the, we wrote a paper a while ago, I think in 2010, with Chris Adami and Lars Marstaller, um, where we try to find out or basically define what representations are. And representations are, for a layman, in a layman's turn, things that you have in your brain that represent the reality. If you look at um, a cup of coffee that you might or might not have in front of you, well, then you can close your eyes and you still know that it's there. You still have something in your brain that represents this cup of coffee. And, I don't have um, one in front of me, by the way. So if I sound tired, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> I, I have one here. So, yes, but now I know that you don't have that. You just communicated this representation to me, and now I know that well, maybe you also would like to have a coffee. That's a good example because we get back to the, exactly that statement in a moment. But the important point is you either know or you don't know something about the environment. And these AI systems that we talked about earlier, um, self-driving car, Watson, and so forth, well, they are 
very, very big databases, but really they do not change according to their experiences. And that means that they don't remember the past. They are trained to do something very specific, but they are sort of, that's what we call them type 1 engineers. They don't have any information about their environment. They wouldn't know if there's a coffee in front of them or not, mm. because it doesn't matter for their program. And then we said, okay, let's extend this idea, and that says, if you now know something about your environment, well, then clearly you're not this type 1 anymore. You must be type 2. You must be different. And this is a very, very important basic decision, the, the, the distinction between type 1 and type 2. Type 1 is a purely reactive machine. Type 2 knows something about the past and its environment and can also base its decision on it, right? If it doesn't have a cup in front of it that has no coffee, that has coffee in it, well, then you might go somewhere to get coffee, right? A deterministic machine that, that can't do this wouldn't know or wouldn't be able to react on the state of the world having a coffee or not having a coffee. And that's, that's this very, very basic distinction, knowing or not knowing something about the environment. And then we spun uh, this further, this idea, and said, well, now that we know that you have or don't have information about the environment, what is it if you have information about somebody else's internal state. Do I know something about the representations of somebody else? And you make this very interesting uh, 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 action right now that says, oh, I don't have a coffee, right? So now I know something about you and you know something about me. You know that I know that you have coffee. Right. And I know that you know that I know that I have coffee. So basically, we have this information that is not just about the environment, but is about something that is a mental state or mental representation that you have. And this, this thing is in um, philosophy or in psychology also called theory of mind. You know that certain things are animate. They have a will of them by themselves, and you can also predict these actions. If somebody is very aggressive, first of all, you know that somebody is very aggressive. And secondly, you can act accordingly. And thirdly, you know that you have to probably calm this person in order to make this person calm and avoid the aggression that could otherwise escalate. So, Knowing something about internal states of others would be this third type of intelligence, basically having yeah information about somebody else's internal states. And then you can consequently spin this further and say, okay, maybe I have representations about my own representation, which would be literally a self-representation, and a self-representation is pretty much nothing else than self-awareness. And the, the argument is, um, for example, knowing, oh, sorry, being hungry well, that's just a physiological response. But knowing that I will be hungry is a very, very different statement. And if you know that you'll be hungry, well, then you have information about your own internal state. Or knowing that you prefer one color over the other is a very different thing than being in the situation and picking one of the two colors. Interesting. So the fourth level, therefore, is then basically self-awareness or having information about your own internal states, thinking about yourself. There's also this, this actually very, very beautiful book um, from Douglas Hofstadter. I mean, first of all, there's the great book, um, Gödel Schabach, but um, he elaborates on this uh, much more in detail in I'm a Strange Loop, where he basically says, I'm thinking about my own thinking, and we can sort of keep this, keep going, saying this sentence over and over again, um, but it means that Oh, he describes this, that consciousness might be this ability to think about your own mental state, and that means that, um, yeah, you have representations about your own representations, and that would define this fourth class. So that, that's sort of what we laid out in this, this article. Interesting. You know, I've got I've got another question about type mm -hmm. two because yeah. an example you used for type two uh, limited memory is self driving cars. So, uh, 
Based on that type, they can observe other cars' speed and direction. But、uh, Type Two also deals with looking into the past. Is there any looking into the past in terms of、uh, self-driving cars? So、um, the, the interesting thing here is that I mean, just because you have information about the past. Doesn't necessarily mean that you have to actually change your behavior accordingly.、Hmm. I mean, the self-driving car would not would not work with just I show you a picture because from a picture you cannot tell the speed of cars or where they were coming from or what their intentions are.、Right. Maybe the turning light is just off on this one picture. Well, you have to observe it over a couple of of seconds or frames in order to tell it. So self-driving cars go towards being type two intelligences, but at the same time. You don't want self-driving cars to actually change their behavior over time. Let's imagine you drive your、mm. self-driving car always to work, but never on the highway. Well, of course, you don't want that self-driving car to lose its ability to drive on the highway, because now it got used to one thing. So, a self-driving car, even though it takes information into account about the past, it's not changing itself very much, or only very, very sparsely. Whereas A real or full-blown Type Two intelligence should actually collect lots of information about the past and then change itself and act accordingly. So I think、um, let's imagine the Mars rover is a, is a pretty good example for this because Mars rovers, we know that now Curiosity is roving around there, and at the same time it gets worn out tires, which means that the controllers that were designed to deal with perfectly round tires should now change to take these worn-out tires into account and. What what happens now is Nada is changing their model to make a、uh, uh, uh, Curiosity drive with its worn-out tires much better now. But a machine that could do this autonomously would be ideal in this situation. That's, that's a true Type Two intelligence machine that we are talking about there. Oh, it's so fascinating, <laughs>、um, Professor Hinsa. As we as we wrap up the interview here, I'm just curious to know. What is the next step for AI research, and where do you see where do you see it in twenty years from now? Yeah, I mean, what what we are trying to do right now is、um, doing more of these type two machines, and、um, I mean, we have we have one project where we're trying to evolve learning right now, because there's there's a process of evolution which goes over generations, but then of course you also have the ability to learn within your lifetime, and this is one of these much more flexible type two machines. This, which is fascinating. You design a machine, or you evolve a machine that can change during its lifetime. That's, that's a fairly massive and complicated problem, but that's what we are specifically pursuing right now. And then the second part there is, of course, these、um, theory of mind or type three ty-、uh, uh, machines that understand that they interact with something that is alive, or something that understands intentions, or something that would like to cooperate, or maybe defect, or maybe collaborate. All these higher cognitive functions that we absolutely need to interact, not. Only with the environment, but also with entities in the environment. This is something that is a fascinating thing that we are researching, and、um, how, for example, evolution allows us to interact in groups, or、um, how hierarchies are evolved, or how social interactions happen. But this is specifically what what I am、uh, researching.、Um, The idea of consciousness is something that happens along the line, but、um, I think we are far from it. I, mean, I always make this joke that this is a problem that we tackle again in 50 years because then we have enough compute power to actually maybe evolve machines. But I don't think that this will happen in, in at least my lifetime. There are 
yeah, fully conscious machines. Um, but at the same time, sort of on the more global scale or, or on the scientific community, this is, this is, again, a very interesting question because a lot of uh, money gets spent onto deep learning and classification and machine learning. And of course, we will see more of those machines because they are really, really uh, have an economic impact, being able to predict the weather better, being able to drive cars better, being able to have robots that can deal with more flexible environments and so forth. This is, this is a big market, first of all, and this is something that, at least in the near future, we'll see quite a bit, even though it's what I would call boring, but that doesn't mean that we won't have that. <laughs> well, Professor Hintza, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Yeah, if we didn't have self-aware uh, machines back in 2001, it may be a while, but uh, it sounds like we do have a lot to look forward to. Thank you so much for being on the show. His name is Arnd Hintza. He is Assistant Professor of uh, Integrative Biology and Computer Science and Engineering at Michigan State University, and he's been talking to us more about artificial intelligence. We appreciate his research and his time here on the Matt uh, Townsend program. When we return, we'll have some more fun and maybe talk more Star Wars and and some more uh, fun topics like that. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. My first memory of BYU, I remember my mom taking me to classes with her and deciding then and there that I was going to be attending BYU as a student someday. Heavenly Father always has more in mind than just diplomas and good grades, and that happened for me with a guy named Cameron. I walked past the BGS posters. The more I walked past it, the more I realized that not only did I need to finish my degree, but I needed to get it from BYU, and I could do it from home. Finish at home what you started at BYU, Bachelor of General Studies. Botany is a little word that incorporates a whole ton of a lot of things. As you walk around where you live, as you walk around campus, because there's some intentionally diverse tree and shrubbery places, as you go up the mountains, what are you seeing? What, you're, what are you thinking? I'm, I'm interested in uh, stepping in your moccasins a little bit uh, okay. as you look around, as you smell around, as you feel around your environment. Discover the world around you by tuning into This Will Take a While. For engaging conversations, weekdays at 4 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away sick again. We just uh, finished interviewing Dr. Arnd, or Professor Arnd Hinsa, who spoke to us about artificial intelligence. And we did bring up quite a bit, you know, this, this fear that we have as humans that machines are going to take over and become self-aware and, and learn that they don't need to take orders from us anymore. And, uh, you know, Professor Hinsa did mention that it, it, it's probably a good idea to have maybe an element of fear to just be a little more skeptical. But at the same time, we could probably do well to be a little more open-minded, especially in terms of the types of artificial intelligence that, that might have a significant impact on our everyday lives, like these self-driving cars that we've been talking a lot about. I know Matt talks a lot about those Teslas that he wishes he could afford. But uh, yeah, so there are a lot of exciting things happening in the world of artificial intelligence. And let's see where it takes us and how it could improve our lives and uh, not just be so afraid of, of what could happen. <sighs> not every machine out there is going to be like Hal from 2001. 
Let's take another quick break. When we come back, we'll continue talking about these interesting topics and more. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Thursday morning. This is Jeff Simpson covering for Dr. Matt, who is away sick yet again. His lungs are burning as he described it. He's got a fever. So, uh... Just make sure that if uh, you're a, a praying person, that you're praying for Dr. Matt, or at least send him some positive energy his way. This is the Dr. Matt Townsend Show, by the way. <laughs> I neglected to mention. But, uh, yeah, we wish him well, and we hope he comes back very soon. Because he's missing all the fun. Today, for instance, is the Bill of Rights Day. Ah. <sighs> The Bill of Rights is the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution proposed uh, following the oftentimes bitter 1787 to 1788 battle over ratification of the U.S. Constitution and crafted to address the objections raised by anti-federalists. The Bill of Rights amendments add to the Constitution specific guarantees of personal freedoms and rights, clear limitations on the government's power in judicial and other proceedings, and explicit declarations that all powers not specifically delegated to Congress by the Constitution are reserved for the states or the people. Mm-hmm. <sighs> that was a really wordy explanation of the Bill of Rights, but very accurate. Basically, we have rights. We have rights. Yeah. Do you think uh, if we if we start developing these self-aware robots, do you think they're going to have rights too? They're oh. going to be robot activists? If they're self-aware, you would think there'd be some sort of – they'll be activists, yes, definitely. Mm. I, I'm making reference, by the way, to an interview that we had uh, during the last hour with uh, Associate Professor Arnd Hinsa – who uh, is at Michigan State, told us a lot about artificial intelligence, Mm -hmm. the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was mostly the good. (laughs) It's Hollywood that likes to focus on the bad of AI. There's still a lot of questions over the the topic, though. Oh, sure. I mean, are you going to create a, 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 you know, a a cyber, was a cybernet was in the Terminator movies? I don't remember what the... Skynet. Skynet, thank you. Mm -hmm. Today is also... Regifting day. Oh. But simple gifts are the best, right? Simple gifts. Not the type that you regift, but the simple kind. So would you rather, Terry, would you rather I gave you a gift that you were going to regift? Or would you rather have me make something out of yarn? Paper mache. <laughs> Just say Merry Christmas. See, now that is a great example of G- a simple gift. Gifts are gift. not necessary. So would that uh, be a simple gift? kids that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that might not go over so well with the kiddos. Uh, Interesting. All right, so no yarn? No. Crafts or, okay. Just, you know, it's... Merry it's, Christmas. It's a gift seeing you every morning. Food? Oh, my goodness. Food's always welcome. Come on. See, now that was a gift to me. Not necessary, but, you know. 
And that's what I'm welcome. Exactly. <laughs> I will not re-gift that uh, salutation, by the way. Well, uh, you're going to say hi to somebody else today. That's a good point. But I might not say Merry Christmas. Oh, okay. Anyway, it is also a historic day or an historic day for a lot of people out there because today, Star Wars, no, Rogue One, a Star Wars story comes out in theaters. You yes. got to make sure I get the title right. Don't, mm-hmm. don't want to offend anybody. So this is basically episode 3.0 or 3.75, right? Because you said it's closer to episode 4 than episode 3. That is true, yes. And we might see some familiar faces in this movie, hopefully. Uh, at least three. Or a helmet. Ooh. Oh, yeah. You and a, a voiceover. Okay, voiceover. Okay, so two and a helmet. How's yeah, that? And a voiceover. Go. There you go. Because apparently that person who is in that helmet, the actor in that helmet, was not invited back, right, to do well, this? Well, they didn't need him. Yeah. It's a guy in a helmet. He could be pretty much anyone. I know, but for those Star Wars purists out there, right, right. again, they want to know. They want to know that this Move guy, on. that the original actor Doesn't was matter. in the suit. So you don't think um, that'll bother people? The, the problem no. is when if James Earl Jones ever passes away. Yeah, you're gonna. You're Ooh, not gonna have any more Darth Vader. Then you gotta somehow figure out the voice again. They're gonna have to gonna get happen. an impersonator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Well, go out and see it. Uh, if you don't mm. have tickets for already this weekend, ha- you already saw it. Thanks. Oh, what, is it uh, worthy of a second viewing? Oh yeah. Okay. <gasps> if you don't I have tickets, to say oh, what oh are you doing? <laughs> if you don't have tickets already, you probably aren't going to get them this weekend because. Uh, so when can we'll you talk see. about it? Mm, I don't know. Actually, okay. Okay. I'm trying to think of when I can. How many weeks one. do you have to wait before you can drop the really big bombshells on us? Like the one that came in episode seven that uh, people were upset that they what found that? out about if they hadn't. Oh. Something having to do with. That you didn't see Mark Hamill till the very end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. I thought it was too. Anyway. Because they keep talking about it throughout the whole movie and you think, oh, he's going to show up. <laughs> oh, where is he? Terry, I'm glad that nothing's been spoiled for you so far, and uh, I hope you have a good time this weekend seeing it. I could spoil a lot of stuff for you if you really want. That is my... No, please I don't. don't. I don't know if it's a spoiler. I'm still going to see the movie. I know. That's... Uh, yeah. I don't know. People, people get hung up on that. It's like, well, well you can I avoid think, things. I and... think plot points, yeah, you can get upset about. But if, if it's just something that appears in the movie... Or even a character that appears in the movie. You don't know how that character is going to mm. interact and things. So, I don't know. That's my simple gift for you today is to wish you a good weekend and a good viewing experience. What are you going to do tomorrow? Please don't re-gift it. You keep doing these things like <laughs> early. We're going to come back to work tomorrow. Oh, it's not last, Friday? Last week you, you told Sadie, hey, you had a wonderful thank you, goodbye. And it was like Tuesday. She worked the rest of the week. I like to think ahead. So sometimes <laughs> I forget that uh, there's still That's another day of work. Thursday. All right. Just, it seems I so mean, long I, ago, I, I appreciate it, but we have a whole other day. Well, then I'm rescinding, rescinding the gift. No, you can't that just, do that. It's I, already out there. Oh. All right. Well, then re-gift it, and then I'll give it back tomorrow. There we go. Okay. In the spirit of the holiday. So, Terry, what else besides Star Wars is going on around the rest of the country? President-elect Donald Trump has chosen Michigan Republican Party Chairwoman Ronna Romney McDaniel to lead the party, he announced on Wednesday. There will be a Romney then? 
Sure. Okay. Current RNC chief Rens Priebus will follow Trump to the White House. His chief of staff leaving McDaniel to take the reins coming come in January. A statement Trump called McDaniel a highly effective leader who has been extremely loyal to our movement. McDaniel is expected to be uh, formally named to their position next month. McDaniel has led the Michigan Republican Party since 2015. She's the niece of former Governor Mitt Romney. The U.S. Federal Reserve on Wednesday announced it will raise interest rates by a quarter point and said it's a faster pace of increase in 2017. According to uh, media reports, the rate increase regarded as a virtual certainty by financial markets in the wake of a a string of generally strong economic reports raised the target federal funds rate 25 basis points to between 0.5% and 0.75%. The rate of increase represents only the second time in the past decade that the Fed has raised rates. And finally, Kevin Lee Coe found himself with about $5 million extra dollars. Only his fortune was whoa, far whoa, from whoa, accidental. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah. What? That found ha- himself with hate. Yeah, he's like, oh, look, five million bucks. That okay, happens it, to me all the time. Yeah, is this an electronic thing or was well, it actual on. cash? Hold on. From about May of 2008 to March 2015, he engaged in a scheme to defraud his employer by, by about $5 million. A, a company called Holt, a heavy machinery company in California, co-managed Holt's accounting department and there's a company's controller – he oversaw the commercial credit account. Okay. He abused that authority to conduct hundreds of unauthorized credit card transactions in the company's account as part of the plea agreement Thursday. Mr. Cole pled guilty to one count of wire fraud. He was charged with eight. One? Just one. One count of money laundering. In total, he must repay $4.5 million. So he still gets half a million? Well, it's only – it's rough, the money. Oh, okay. It isn't quite five, hmm. and it's kind of you know, disputed as so to the exact amount. Five. So around okay. $4.5 um, Let's see. The amount of money as he stole would change most people's lives. It seemed to have changed <laughs> his. Among the things he spent it on – here's the list – luxury cars, season tickets to see the Sacramento Kings and the San Francisco 49ers. Easily uh, was the, that this year? Uh, I'm not sure. He, 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 that was a bad investment. <laughs> he's a fan. He likes both teams. Easily the strangest expenditure was money spent on playing the, the, playing the app Game of War. Mm. Wait a minute. You're kidding phone. me. Yeah. He spent $5 million to play. No, no, he had $5 million. One of the expenditures was on this app called Game of War. Says easily. Come on, hold on. Even in-app purchases are not hold that on. much. Easily the strangest. So he spent on the smartphone game that considers it's a freemium app, right? Sure. But if you want to get better armament, you know, mm-hmm. some swords and soldiers and stuff, you spend more money, right? Um, the app, he spent a million dollars between like 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 seven year span, a million dollars buying upgrades Still. on a phone app, right? The average paying player spends five hundred fifty dollars on the game in twenty fifteen. I don't spend mm. any on those games. Yeah, I don't no. I, I, no, I'm sorry. But this game I read a report so about a year ago, it makes about a million dollars a day. Jeez. And he spent a million of the five that he stole on an app on a game. See, this is just a great example of how when people have that much money, they are so bored. It's interesting. But he still had to go to work. He still had a job to play, you know. He still had a cover to. to (laughs) He shows up in a brand new luxury car. Oh, yeah, it's been a good year for me. I'm glad you explained further your tease because I just thought at first maybe he, you know, opened up a room and found $5 million. Like, oh, I forgot this was there. (laughs) Oh, yeah, right. He Mm. just kept putting, you know, his mad money away. (laughs) Oh, yeah, oh, I got $5 million now. Hey, speaking of being surprised about finding something in one of your rooms, 
This is a creepy story. A Florida man has been arrested after breaking into his neighbor's home to pet the family cat. Hmm. St. Petersburg resident Brittany Klein woke up in the middle of the night on November 20th after her cat was startled. When I opened my eyes, I could see the shadow of a man standing at the end of my bed, said Klein. He was standing perfectly still. I said, hello? And when I said hello, he dropped very slowly down to the ground. And as soon as I saw the shadow move down to the ground, I knew somebody was there. Klein then flipped on the lights and noticed a man crouched down at the foot of her bed, petting the cat. She then told the man to leave, in which he complied. The intruder, later identified as Jasper Fiorenza. Jasper? Jasper. Nice. That sounds like the cat's name, doesn't uh-huh. it? <laughs> Jasper it's one of the Fiorenza. guys from 101 Dalmatians. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Horace and Jasper. That's right. So he had to climb over a baby gate to you exit sure Klein's bedroom, <laughs> allowing police to pull a fingerprint off her bedroom door frame. Fiorenza attempted to return to Klein's home the following night and was promptly arrested. So he came back? Wow. Wow. He apparently didn't learn his lesson. Pet a cat. Does he know there's more than one cat in the world? I'm sure there's plenty on the street. Right. There's only – oh, wait. I almost called the cat Jasper Fiorenz. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a cat name, yeah. Oh, man. I wonder what kind of cat it was. Must have been an awesome cat. Sheesh. Oh, my goodness. Creepy. Have either of you ever had somebody break into your house and, uh, and pet an animal of yours? Mm, no. No. Uh-uh. Okay. I just I wasn't sure because it sounded like maybe it was kind of a common occurrence. Like he didn't think his actions were too out of out of line. No. Mm. No. No. Okay. But that would be odd and off putting to be in your bed, wake up, see someone standing at the foot, you say something and they just sort of slowly shrink to the ground. <laughs> I have woken up in the middle I have woken up in the middle of the night to the sound of my car being driven out of the out of the garage and my wife still in bed there hmm. next to me. Was it a kid? No, it was my sister-in-law. Oh. But she didn't ask you. No, beforehand. she didn't. No. <laughs> See, <laughs> she just grabbed the kid. She needed to, she was she had a bad cold and cough thing. She needed to go get some medicine, but she thought she could just sneak out, but our bedroom's right over the garage, so it's like, no. Yeah. So, funny. lesson to be learned, if you're going to borrow your brother-in-law's car, make sure to ask first. That'd and, be a good idea. And if you're going to if you want to pet somebody's cat, just ask. Mm-hmm. Don't break into their house in the middle of the night and slowly shrink down when they call you on it. Just the, the, that image of the shadow just sort of disappearing <laughs> at the end of your bed. You're like, oh, my gosh. That is creepy. <laughs> but it'd be hard not to laugh turning <laughs> on the lights and seeing somebody petting your cat. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Ooh, sound effects. <laughs> we can use those ones, though. Uh, one, <laughs> one more quick story. Speaking of, uh, you know, shady people doing uh, inappropriate and illegal things, two suspects in a weekend break-in. Yes, exactly. Two suspects in a weekend break-in in a Massachusetts convenience store had a foul accomplice. Northampton officers investigating a robbery in progress at a store at about 3.45 a.m. Sunday quickly found two men and a live rooster. I knew you were going to put a in bird a in this. Car. Because of foul? Yes. Yes. We love puns here. The men were arrested on breaking and entering and other charges, and the stolen property was recovered, the AP reports. The rooster was not charged. 
but was taken to the station for safekeeping and hopefully questioning because he probably knows a lot. Well, you don't arrest a rooster because you can't fingerprint them. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't stand still for for mug shots. Oh, man. They found a way to work around that. Exactly. Police said on their official Facebook page that while they have provided temporary shelter for a variety of animals before, this was the first rooster. Hmm. They're pro- those those uh, those two crooks are probably going to want to send somebody in to to knock off that rooster. Although, if you tase them, you could have a tasty meal. Oh, good point. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah, so that uh, that rooster might want to get out of the country. If yeah. he's if he uh, values life and uh, doesn't want to uh, worry his accomplices that he's going to spill the beans, he better he better get out of here manana or right now even. Interesting. These are the types of stories that you're only going to hear on the Matt Townsend show, or at least you're not going to hear people talk about them for so long as we do. Yes, probably can. Cut down, edit some of these stories. Anyway, we're not going to do that. But when we come back, we're going to be talking about a different way of slimming down. Ooh, how's that for a tease? When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when we contract a disease or virus, many people's first thoughts turn to doctors and drugs. New research, however, says that doctors are under-prescribing one remedy that might be just as effective. According to a recent review in the Canadian Medical Association journal, exercise can deliver comparable benefits to drugs and surgeries with fewer side effects. Here to talk about this subject today is Dr. Sherry Kohlberg-Oaks, Professor Emerita of of Exercise Science from Old Dominion University. Welcome to the program, uh, Sherry. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Although... uh, this is yet another interview that we've had where I, I've realized that I need to change my ways. Uh, anyway, um, so this obviously this subject is a specialty of yours. What I'm curious, what got you so interested in researching about exercise and how it can help fight off disease and chronic illness? Well, interestingly, um, even when I was a child, I <clears throat> actually had type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune type. It's not something you necessarily get through having a bad lifestyle choices, but when I was young, I felt always so much better when I exercised, and this was years and years ago before there were blood glucose meters and a good way to handle it, and I just always knew there was something powerful about being active, and in fact, um, over the years, the research has backed me up on all of that. Um, In fact, 10 years ago, um, the American College of Sports Medicine, which is like the premier organization for exercise and fitness, um, started a campaign called Exercise is Medicine, and that's actually spread around the world now. And what they talk about a lot in that is how, in terms of the, especially the non-communicable diseases like diabetes and obesity and cancer, that many times we can prevent it or delay it or reduce its severity just by being more physically active, which is an amazing thing. (laughs) 
Mm, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting because we've had uh, plenty of guests on the show that have talked about you know, some of the psychological benefits of exercise and even the emotional benefits of exercise. And uh, we also have spoken with um, Dr. Edward Laskowski, who who said in an article, if a pill could give you all the benefits of exercise, it would be the best pill around. And how true would that be? You know, a lot of people today would, would want that easy out of just taking a pill and, and having all those same benefits. Um, so, you know... You mentioned in the article that uh, if if doctors could – if doctors would prescribe this, I, I wonder if more people would do it. When we spoke with Dr. Laskowski, he actually said that uh, I think it was around 30 or 33 or 35 percent of people would actually follow that prescription of, of exercising more. Yeah, it's a tricky thing because um, they don't really teach people much in medical school about physical activity. They teach them about diseases and medications to treat that and other types of treatments, and it just gets glossed over. Um, I mean, they have actually been trying to change that in some of the medical school curricula. They've actually been trying to introduce nutrition and, and, and exercise and other lifestyle changes that would help combat disease on a more holistic uh, sense. So the whole body is involved with that. But... Interesting. You mentioned the exercise pill. There has been some research on a couple different types of pills that would target things in the body that would kind of make it as if you had done some exercise. The thought was, especially for people who aren't able to do any exercise. Like Hold on. Let, let me get a pencil. Let me get a pencil and write these down. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the problem with those medications is that none of them can fully replicate the every. Thing that you get from being active because it it affects your cardiovascular health. I mean, your vessels get bigger, the blood flows better through them. Um, you're able to reduce inflammation. We can we can do that with pills, but it gets it's systemically done with exercise. And then you get um, you know the, the beneficial effects on the heart and the heart size and how the heart pumps and the lungs and the muscles themselves. And it's really impossible to come up with a pill that. It's every single area that being active gets. Um, it's interesting. I think the, the human body really is set up to be active. It, it's when we don't use parts of our body, they start to fail on us, um, particularly the muscles. You lose your muscles if you don't use them. You lose your bone mass if you don't do weight-bearing activity. I mean, the body is set up to be active. So when we're we're doing all this time sitting in our car or sitting down. We're actually working against the natural order of things. <laughs> mm. So, you know, I mentioned earlier the example of, of how it helps us emotionally and, and uh, you know, even mentally. But uh, as far as illness goes, and we'll, we'll get into the specifics of, of the different types of illnesses uh, here in a little bit, but... Overall, what are what are some of the other benefits? You mentioned, you know, the heart and lungs. What are what are some other benefits that exercise provides that uh, that maybe you can't get from a pill or from just staying away from some of these activities that might harm us? Well, there are actual changes in the brain when we exercise, and <clears throat> that's why we're actually able to reduce the risk of getting dementia or even Alzheimer's when we're physically active um, because of the way the brain has to coordinate all the muscular movement. I think it just kind of keeps it 
sharp and it keeps the the normal um, enzymes and things that are released in the brain going at full tilt. Um, in terms of the muscle, I'm when people ask me if they have to add in one type of, acti- one type of activity because they don't have time to do a lot, what they, should they do? And I always, always tell them to do resistance training because it's really true, especially with the muscle fibers, if you don't use them, you lose them over time. So with aging, we're all losing some muscle mass, but we lose it even faster when we're inactive on top of that. Um, we just, in terms of fitness and endurance, I mean, just to be able to do your normal daily activities, whether it's just walking across campus or, or you know, just staying up late to get things done, you just have so much more um, energy, endurance to do all those things when you're normally physically active. Otherwise, being inactive makes you tired. It's really funny. People think, well, if I work out today, I'm just too tired to do anything else. Well, there's, you know, in a short term, yeah, you can get a little worn out from doing a hard workout, but in the long term, it just gives you so much more energy on a daily basis to get everything done that it seems silly not to fit it into your schedule. And in terms of learning, you want to learn something, actually try to learn it while you're exercising. That's how we remember things the most effectively. So study on a treadmill or something. <laughs> so you're really getting the, the most that you can out of how your body and your brain and your musculature usually coordinate to help you remember things. If you think of, you know, uh, Paleo Man, he had to be smart. He had to run and catch prey. He had to avoid being eaten um, hmm. by larger things. And so our brains really, really work well when we're physically active and we remember things better. So that's That's, that's great advice. That That does bring up a question for me, though, you know, they, especially for men, I feel like multitasking makes it so that one or the other tasks that you're doing becomes less effective because you're trying to do them both at the same time. Whereas if you had just focused on one of those items at a time, it would be the most effective. Is that true in terms of exercise? Let's say if I were to try to read or if I were to uh, try to study up on something or listen to a lecture or something like that, would that... Uh, would my uh, retention level, uh, would that be lessened or would it I, – I'm trying to see how I want to word this question. So basically, if I'm, if I'm trying to learn a new skill or task or a, a new subject while I'm exercising, is that going to be difficult for me to do? Is that going to lessen the effectiveness of the workout? Um, you know, it just depends. Like when they make the, the treadmill desk that people can walk while they're doing work, they most of the time they only go at like two miles per hour, which right. is not an extreme, you know, because they don't want people flying off the back of this while they're trying to type. But uh, I think in general, if you're talking moderate exercise, it is, it's, you're fully capable of doing both without one interfering with the other. In fact, the, having some kind of movement while you're you're studying or reading or whatever will actually help. I mean, you can do really vigorous weight training or something. Maybe you can listen, but, you know, if you have to worry about setting the weight down carefully or whatever, that's going to have to take some of your brain power. But if you can do a type of activity where it's kind of a mindless thing while you're doing it, then you really can focus on um, what you're trying to learn and do that effectively while you're moving. Right. So uh, I I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I'm actually 
the fill-in host for, for Matt Townsend when he's away sick or when he's on vacation. And right now he happens to be sick. And one of the things that he's working on is uh, he's doing this new exercise plan, and apparently it's being covered by a magazine or a, a channel on television. And he keeps having to postpone it because he's just not feeling well. Uh, do you advocate exercise even when people are not feeling well? If they're, let's just say you've got a cold or a fever, is that a safe thing to do or is it a wise thing to do? Um, I don't think so. I, most of the research shows that um, in terms of being active, that you, you'll have a, a lesser chance of developing a cold or getting the flu or whatever. It actually boosts your immune system. But in the short run, when you exercise, there's a, a depression of immune function right after you exercised or while you're doing it. And so sometimes if you're fighting a cold, it'll come full on if you really work out hard. Um, if you, you're most of the way through it and you're just getting over the sniffles at the end, there shouldn't be any problem with doing it. But uh, there's no point in working out when you're acutely sick, like right when you're sick. It does not help you. At that point, <laughs> probably actually is a detriment to do it then. Right. And I, you know, for me, I would probably think that uh, it might have a negative impact on my future exercises because I might associate it with feeling miserable, <laughs> you know, if I'm trying to exercise yeah, while I'm sick. True. Yeah, it's probably not a good time to work out when you're excessively tired too, like you pulled an all nighter or, you know, you just, um, like you said, for even for the emotional reasons, but, but for the physical ones as well. Um, it's interesting. They didn't understand studies on people and exposure to colds and viruses and when they're most likely to get sick. And they found that after people run a marathon, if they're exposed to somebody who has a virus, they're more likely to get it. And that's that same sort of idea that you're, you've depressed the immune system when you've done really extreme bout of activity, but um, overall, people who do moderate amounts of exercise are less likely to get sick, um, but people who exercise too much are more likely to get sick. So there's a fine balance there about just the right amount of exercise without overdoing it. What happens is when you ever have any kind of emotional or physical stress on your body, you release more of a hormone called, called cortisol, and cortisol will make you... A, insulin resistant, but B, it also will depress your immune system. And so that's why it's a lot more easy to get sick right after you've gone through finals when you're really stressed or, you know, some other time like that. And then, I mean, if you can do some moderate activity during that time, sometimes it helps reduce stress, it reduces cortisol, and then you're less likely to get sick, but you just don't want to overdo it at certain times. So when Dr. Matt gets back, we'll tell him to just take it easy. Maybe I'll text him or email him and just say, you know, you probably don't need to exercise today, and that's okay. Anyway, right. um, you, know, you can do you can do light stuff. I mean, you know, walking around doing normal daily activities is not a problem. But it's just when you do the really intense stuff, there's that that temporary depression of the immune system. Yeah. Sherry, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's continue this discussion and and maybe talk a little bit more about the different types of chronic illnesses and how exercise can can help those. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, this uh, this (laughs) we'll continue this discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Sherry R. Kohlberg Oaks, who is a PhD, is Professor Emerita of Exercise Science from Old Dominion University. She is an internationally recognized authority on diabetes and exercise who has shaped physical activity guidelines for many professional organizations. The author of 10 books, 23 book chapters, and over 300 articles, she recently received the 2016 Outstanding Educator in Diabetes Award from the American Diabetes Association. Uh, Dr. Kohlberg Oaks, thank you so much for joining us here on the Matt Townsend Show. Sure, it's my pleasure. So um, I was hoping that we could now dig a little deeper into this and uh, and talk a little bit more about how exercise can help with these different types of chronic illnesses. And you mentioned that uh, that you were diagnosed with uh, type 1 diabetes. What are, what are maybe some exercises that have helped you or that could help other people out there with diabetes? Uh, well, <clears throat> if you read the latest position statement from the American Diabetes Association, on which I was the first author, Everyone actually needs to do four types of activities. The one is aerobic or cardio training, and somebody may get that just walking around campus and, you know, doing stuff like that. It doesn't necessarily have to be a a structured type of activity. Another is resistance or strength training, which I think is really critical for um, gaining and retaining muscle mass. Um, A third is for older individuals who... um, Basically, over the age of 40, everybody needs to work on balance training. So some of the resistance training exercises like core and lower body actually double as balance training, but then there are other ones that involve just mainly standing on one foot or practicing um, doing standing on an uneven surface and whatnot. And the fourth is flexibility, and that's for everybody as well because um, you look at how flexible little kids are, and then you look at how flexible you are even when you get to be a young adult, you've lost a lot of flexibility. So a lot of those can be integrated into the same type of activity where um, you could do Tai Chi or yoga, and you've already worked on a couple of those at one time. But in terms of overall health of musculature and and being healthy for your whole life, you really have to integrate all those in. And it's really a fifth type that we don't talk about much, but they've actually found now um, – is really important overall, and that's just breaking up your sedentary time. And a number of studies have done different things like that. People get up every 30 minutes, or they'll get up and get up every hour. Um, in terms of diabetes management, diabetes prevention, getting up every 30 minutes during a period of prolonged sitting, it seems to be actually changes your metabolism, changes how your body processes glucose and carbohydrates and and other things, and we may find that that's going to be the most critical thing that people can do on a daily basis when they don't do some other type of activities, just not sit continuously for long periods of time. Mm. So uh, in this, we've got an article here from the Washington Post that uh, mentions different types of these illnesses and, and how exercise can help. One of, the, one of the illnesses it mentions is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. What, what are some ways that exercise can help with that disease? Uh, you know, it's interesting because once you have some changes in the lung cells, it appears that those are, for the most part, irreversible. But what you can do is, when you feel short of breath in your exercise because you're just not bringing in as much oxygen as normal, by increasing the fitness of your, your muscles themselves, where they're better at 
extracting any oxygen that your blood delivers, you actually make it so people have greater endurance and ability to just function in life, even though they can't reverse that actual obstructive disease. Mm. And then uh, another one here, which seems like a one that you might want to be careful with because it's osteoarthritis and it seems like one you might want to avoid physical activity but how can how can exercise help for people that have osteoarthritis it's interesting you would think that exercising when you have pain would make it worse but in most cases doing light to moderate activity people find a reduction in the pain and if part of the, the pain from the joint is caused by the joint surface is kind of wearing down over time, if you can strengthen the muscles around that, that joint, you actually can reduce some of the friction on the joint. And so that's where resistance training comes in again. And specifically, what you need to do is strengthen the muscles around any joint that's affected by osteoarthritis. And it is really beneficial to be active. Again, you don't want to be crazy active, like doing a lot of... Um, weight-bearing, pounding, maybe running, um, moderate stuff's okay, but really bigger stuff sometimes can aggravate it. There's just a fine line there, like we were talking about with immune function. Some is good, and sometimes too much is not good. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, obviously, we're going to want to consult with our doctors before we start any big exercise regimen. But these are all different diseases, obviously. Does that mean that the exercise regimens are going to vary depending on, on what type of disease we have and what pain we're experiencing? Oh, absolutely. I think that uh, you almost have to make exercise prescriptions um, specific to the person, and and that's for a lot of different reasons. I mean, obviously, if you have somebody who has neuropathy and has feet from, um, from diabetes, you're not going to necessarily want to have that person out there running or jogging because that could cause a lot of trauma to the feet that would not be detected. Um, So something like that, you might start out with, I don't know, elliptical strider or some other type of of cardio training machine where there's not as much stress on the feet, or you may try seated exercises. And sometimes it's really just finding what the individual likes to do best because, honestly, so many people stop doing exercise um, (laughs) that one of the really important things is to pick activities that you actually enjoy and that you can do without getting injured. Right. It sounds, though, you mentioned earlier that resistance training seems to be a good form of exercise that is is good all across the board. Um, yep. I can think of one case where it wouldn't be good unless you're, I mean, obviously overdoing it on a, a joint that <laughs> needs to be replaced or something. But, I mean, as long as you're not totally aggravating an pre-existing problem. Resistance training is probably the best thing you can do. Yeah. And then, uh, Dr. Kohlberg-Oaks, I I just wanted to ask you one more question as we wrap up here. What what advice could you give uh, the number of people that – there are a lot of people that don't have one of these chronic illnesses, and for some reason or another, they just don't exercise. What do you – what what advice can you give those people that either just don't want to or just aren't doing it because they tell themselves that they're too busy? You know, if, even if you just start doing more active movement during the day, that actually accumulates and helps benefit your health. So, for example, the whole time I've been talking to you, I've been standing up and walking around. Just simply ah. doing things like that 
can contribute to your overall health and help you keep weight off. So um, simply standing is an activity. And I know most of us don't think of that as being like a super, you know, strenuous activity because it's not. But um, in terms of your overall health, just being moving more all day long, standing, walking, taking extra, extra steps, taking the stairs instead of the elevator, just simple things like that can really add up and, and benefit your health. Nothing else, just start with that. Well, Sherry, you've already impacted my day because I was sitting down and now I'm standing up. So thank you very much. <laughs> you and thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time and your research and uh and your experience. You are quite accomplished, too. Uh, we'll take a quick break. We were just speaking with uh, Dr. Sherry Kohlberg-Oaks, who's been talking to us about n- a non-pill treatment for chronic illness, which is exercise. We really appreciate her. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with our wonderful producer, Caitlin Thomas, about entertaining kids during the holidays. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. As you know, Christmas is only 10 days away, which, mean our, which means our kids will soon be at home with us during the day again, even though they don't get out until the 23rd, which is annoying and a different topic for a different time. All parents know that the worst thing in the world is bored kids. They make messes everywhere and spend most of the day whining about how bored they are. It can be a lot to handle. So Caitlin Thomas is here with us today to teach us about some ways that we can keep kids entertained while they are home for the holidays. Welcome. Uh, hello. It's so good to have you back. Looking uh, out for and, all my parent friends today. Yes. And I am one of those parent friends. I don't have any kids, so this doesn't concern me. But <laughs> but you were a kid. But I used to be a kid, and I remember my mom. Your mom still who thinks worked, you're a kid. Who my mom was a working mom. Probably. I know that's true. My mom was a working mom, and so she... Summer was a little bit easier because, you know, everybody was home. You know, she could coordinate with the neighborhood moms, like, who was going to take who. But Christmas is different because people are on vacations or, you know, have lots of activities. And so my mom would dread it, thinking, like, what am I going to do with my kids all day? Mm. Nobody wants to babysit little kids during Christmas. You don't want to go out and spend all of your money on activities that when you could be spending that money on presents or – Right. It's a hard time of year. Interesting. And so, and this year, at least for Utah, I don't know about everywhere else, but we have kind of a short Christmas break for kids. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's, it's a little sad, but at least you don't have to think of as many ways to keep them entertained. Hmm. Okay, so you've got some ideas for parents and what we can do to entertain these kids. Yes. Okay, okay. so growing up, we've always had three Christmas trees in my house. One's like a fake one that you put up in the window display. It's really pretty. Three? Three. The real one goes downstairs and Santa Claus brings presents to the real tree. The third one's a smaller fake tree that the kids decorate every mm, year. Okay. So we would spend a day. Well, did you decorate this year? Well, that no. That tree? We didn't put that one up this year. Oh. There's no little kids <laughs> in my house, but it's full of 
arts and crafts. You know, my mom would put popcorn. Well, we'd make popcorn strings and paper chains. We'd yeah. spend a whole day doing that, and we your got to decorate the tree. Your mom's waiting for you to provide those kids. Apparently, we didn't. We failed this yeah. year. But <laughs> little kids love it, and we were entertained for a whole day just decorating that tree. I thought maybe you were going to say that one of those trees was the decoy tree so that the kids – when they my my two That's year old fake presents we now. couldn't yeah. we couldn't touch that well we couldn't touch the other two trees because we we'd mom didn't want us to ruin them but we could touch that one and rearrange it yeah. as much as we wanted see I need a decoy tree because my two year old opened all the presents woke up <laughs> woke up early one morning and opened don't, all the presents well that's one way to entertain them <laughs> you got to put fake presents under there okay. I guess but so there's that a whole day of arts and crafts okay or Great you can idea. just bake cookies yes. Remember that? I used to do that as a kid all the time. We'd make gingerbread cookies, and then we'd get to decorate them and hang them on the tree. That was one of our mm. crafts. Okay, so the oh, first one. Stringing up the, the cranberries and the popcorn for the tree? Come uh-huh. on. And put the gingerbread men. They're mm. the ornaments, you know? So we've got arts and crafts. We've what else you got? Cookie decorating. Mm. Or you can, you know, during the day, if you're you gone go. at work and you need to entertain them, send them outside and build a snowman. Go caroling. I haven't seen any little kids out in the snow this year. Granted, we haven't had we a haven't ton had of snow much yet. Snow, right? But yeah. I haven't. When we did have snow, I haven't seen any little kids because playing in it. Where are the snowmen? You know, we do have cookie decorating in my house, but in my house, it's called frosting eating. Okay. Because mm, yeah. that's pretty well, much I mean, all yeah. that happens. Well, mm-hmm. the anticipation of the cookies coming out of the oven and decorating them so you can <laughs> eat them will keep them entertained. Okay, we'll have to wait for the snow to do the snowman, though. Snowman, I know, I'm sad, but it'll when it's here, bundle them up, send them outside, and then cook some hot chocolate while they're waiting, and then they come in, and it's magical. Mm-hmm. Cute, thanks, Cute. Dad. Cute, I know. <laughs> okay, here's some nighttime activities. We were just talking about this before we came back on air. There's always businesses or big public displays somewhere. Someone's got lights. Yes. Um, here in Utah, we have Temple Square which we're famous for. People come from all over the world to see the mm-hmm. the temple lights. But and it's I know free. It's free. But I know that like zoos sometimes will light up the zoo at night. Oh, cool. Um, different community squares. I don't know. Find yeah, something in your community. There's a there's golf always... course here that has, yeah. has Spanish Fork. Light, yeah, that puts lights We've out. We've already done that. And like, there's yeah. ones that you can go and drive through. And yeah, that's kids the Spanish can... Fork one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and that's always fun. And sometimes they cost a little bit of money, but I mean – Sometimes they cost a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> it depends. Go buy some donuts and some hot chocolate and get everyone in the car and go look at the lights. There you go. At least it kills a couple of hours, right? But you don't have to go pay for the lights either. There's houses around. Yeah. I was just going to mention that. If you don't if you want to pay, just go find the neighbor that went ham for Christmas and <laughs> put all the lights out. And Does, then is that what the, is that what the kids are saying these days? <laughs> yes. Ham. It's better than what some of the other kids are saying these days. I'm going to go ham on this go house. Go ham. Uh, yeah. And they well, go all out. But do they serve the ham is what I want No, there's no know. actual ham. There's just a lot of lights and they've got like the jumping reindeers and and oh, then God. you turn on the radio station and the music matches the lights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's some neighbors that really jive on that. Find them. They're out there. Oh, there's, there's five or six around my neighborhood that Alone. we go to every yeah. year. Yeah. You can get on Google. Sometimes Google will give you like a map of where they mm-hmm. are if they've mapped hmm. themselves. And those are free. Ooh. Yeah. See, that's better than the drive-thru well, there's one. there's a cost of gas, but, Because the drive-thru gas one. Gas donuts, but. The drive-thru one, you're trying to pack in as many of your family and friends <laughs> as you can into, into one car. Because exactly. you have to pay per, by, you pay, yeah, you by yeah. the car. Yeah. No, these ones are free. You just have to fight for a spot with all the other neighbors. But once like the, the thing's done, people normally are pretty yeah. nice about it. But yeah. 
as a kid, kids love that. I still love it as an adult. I find it fascinating. I don't know how they do it. I don't know. I don't know. My, my kids always, can we go see this house? Can we go see this house? Can we go see this house? See, they love it. All the way, all, all the time on the way home. It's mm. magical. Yeah. Wait wait for the day when we actually choose to do it, okay? I'm, I'm on the way home. <laughs> That's know, why I've you can't tell no them kids. until about five minutes before you go. Well, you know, you're on the way home. You're late with the kids. You're, they should be getting into bed because they got school the next day and they're no all asking kids, to go no see. No lights yeah. for you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> kind of um, sounded like Yoda, by the way. Anyway. If you don't, here's my last one. Okay. This is the last, the, the best one. If you don't want to pay money and if you want some help around the house and you want to keep your kids active, Make them a chore list. It's a great way to keep kids entertained during the holidays. Yeah. My kids ignore that list. We, uh, my mom would do it in like a big Christmas calendar and we'd all have different chores every day. And once we finished it, we could put a sticker and it was like our countdown until Christmas. And there was a different treat oh, every day. So you have a chore finished. advent calendar. Yeah. Ah. She combined them. And so the, the joy of putting a sticker mm. on the day, but then also like getting a treat. It was like candy canes one day and then like little mm. things every day. Mm-hmm. Um, it worked. Because we would That's do chores for do. at least two or three hours because it would take us that long to clean one room because we'd mess around and make a bigger mess before we actually ended up cleaning it. Oh. But uh, it was very successful. And the calendar was shaped like a tree. Um, and, yeah. You can well. St- it, was, it was perfect. Go out, folks, and uh, implement some of these ideas from Caitlin Thomas for, the, for Christmas. Yeah. Help, help yourself by keeping your kids entertained. Caitlin Thomas. Eliminating boredom this Christmas at home. It's my job. <laughs> Thank you for that. We needed that. I needed that, especially the chore advent calendar. I'm going to go home and implement that myself. All right, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be we're going to continue the Christmas discussion, and uh, we're going to be talking about how we should be talking to our kids about Santa Claus, and maybe how long we should be prolonging the magic when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Thursday morning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson here filling in for Dr. Matt. I'm joined here by Terry South, as always, our wonderful producer, and Sean O'Neill, who is running the board and doing a knock-up, stand-up, knock-up or stand-up job? I'm not standing up. Oh, well, then he's doing a knock-up job. He's doing a sit-down job. Yes, yeah, he's doing a sit-down job. Very good. We just finished speaking with uh, our producer, Caitlin Thomas, about different ways that we can help our kids with boredom around the house during the holidays and different ways that we can celebrate Christmas, like going out and seeing those dancing lights or the drive through lights, doing chores. Oh, the chores, nativity calendar that was a a gold nugget right there that i'm going to use that's going to go over big in my house yes and uh you know if you're disney who owns lucas films then you're going to be celebrating christmas by uh just letting all the cash flow in this weekend from all the merchandising yes as the new star wars movie comes out it is called rogue one a star wars story is that correct Mm -hmm. that's true this is what happens between episode three Revenge of the Sith, mm-hmm. and Episode Four: A New Hope, which to me is just called Star Wars. Yes. If I if I say I, I really like the film Star Wars, and people say which one, I kind of roll my eyes and sigh, because Star Wars, Episode Four should just be called Star Wars, in my well, opinion. Well, it's called Star Wars, A New Hope. 
What did I say? Episode four? Mm-hmm. Episode well, four. Well, it's episode four. That was added after the fact, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah. Anyway, if you haven't seen it, which you probably haven't unless you are a movie critic or... Well, you probably think number, number well, episode five is The Empire Strikes Back. Isn't it? It's actually Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, this is... My brain is frying. <laughs> anyway, go see it this weekend if you can get tickets. If not, just wait a couple of weeks and let all the pandemonium wear off. Next so, week. Yeah. It's also Bill of Rights Day as well as Regifting Day. So speaking of Christmas, uh, some of you are probably out there looking forward to regifting some of the gifts that you are not going to be all that excited about. I've well, had some gifts that have fallen into that category. At this point in time, it's a lot easier to regift than it is to order it from somewhere that has to ship it. But instead of regifting, I like to just go in the store and return it for store credit or there money. There you go. Mm. That's my way of regifting. And it benefits me greatly. Anyway, thanks for playing the MoTab again. Sure. We do have rights to play the MoTab, singing simple gifts. Do we have lefts, though? (laughs) No. And we also don't have rights to play the Seinfeld clip, which I believe is where the idea of re-gifting came from. Or at least that's where it was coined, in my opinion, is Seinfeld. When Elaine dates a guy who re-gifts one of her gifts. Just no one ever thought of taking a Christmas gift that they didn't want and giving it to somebody else. They just didn't. They didn't have a name for it. Seinfeld has a wonderful knack of putting a name to all of these problems that we have. Well, it it made it socially conscious. Yes. Okay. They made us aware that this was a giant problem. That, That was the big message from Seinfeld is awareness, I'm sure. Anyway, I'm sure there is other news other than regifting and Star Wars. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Donald Trump can be president or a Washington, D.C. hotel owner. These are his choices. Okay. So says a federal agency, but he can't be both. Which is weeks to go before the presidential inauguration, the General Services Administration, which leases the old post office building... In Washington, where Trump has opened his latest luxury hotel, said in a letter on Tuesday that Trump will be in breach of his lease if he does not divest his stake in the hotel before taking office. The lease that permits Trump's company to use the historic building states, no elected official of the government of the U.S. shall be admitted to any, to uh, to share in part of this lease or to benefit or any benefit that may arise therefrom. The GSA says this means Trump must not only relinquish his managerial control, but his ownership interest as well. If the president-elect refuses to comply, there'll be a hearing and all this other stuff. The interesting thing is, however, that once Trump takes office, he'll be able to direct, direct the activities of the GSA involved so he could just tell them to forget about it and move on. Trump campaign offices did not respond to any questions for comment on that. They'll do that later on Twitter. Twitter was uninvited from a meeting with President-elect Donald Trump and other major tech executives Wednesday as a payback for its refusal to make a custom emoji to accompany the hashtag Crooked Hillary that was used on the website. A person with knowledge of the situation told Politico. Twitter formats certain hashtags so that an image appears alongside the text when it's used, such as the rings for the Olympics or a swirl for the release of the Disney film Moana. Also, the, uh, they did special emojis for the Democratic and the Republican convention mm-hmm. so that if you tweeted a certain hashtag, there was a little emoji. They were concerned that um, 
this uh, the Trump campaign had wanted to deploy an emoji of small bags with money being given away or stolen whenever you put hashtag crooked Hillary on Twitter. They felt that <laughs> felt too much like an advertisement for the campaign, and they didn't want to get into that. I'm gonna say, isn't Twitter mm-hmm. trying to be objective there? Or, or that not, was, not objective, but you that know. was their hope as they were trying to be objective. Yeah, the Trump campaign took it as uh, something else. Hmm. They uh, Twitter gave back the five million dollars. It went to the uh, CEO Jack Dorsey is the one that made the decision, called the campaign, explained why they were making this decision, and apparently that didn't sit well. Uh, and so the reports are that that's why they were not invited to this big meeting of all the heads of the tech companies. Hmm. The Trump campaign said that Twitter wasn't invited today. Because uh, with the tech leaders, because there just wasn't enough seats at the table. Hmm. That's code. The table is huge. Yeah, no kidding. They had like 30 people around this thing, but Twitter couldn't have a seat. Hmm. But we had Ivanka and Eric, right. Don Jr., Jr., Eric Kushner was sitting there. There's all sure. these people. There were seats around the outside and everything, but he can't sit at the table. It was, just, <laughs> it was very interesting. Google wasn't there, were they? Both of them. Ooh. Alphabet. They have two heads of the Alphabet Company, which is now the parent company of Google oh, and all okay. these other ones. They were both there. So strange because he's such I a huge proponent of okay. Twitter. Yeah, that was kind of mm. the, the thought was you use it all the time and that guy's not there? Oh, well. On Wednesday, Major League Baseball and the MLB Players Association agreed to a new collective bargaining agreement. The agreement means they will have no uh, work stoppage from 1995 through 2021, good for the longest drought of work stoppage in any major American professional sport. Also, the NBA and their Players Association announced a seven-year deal, which could deliver labor peace for the NBA through the 2023-24 season. I know sports is a business, but it's, it still depresses me that that it can it can stop the sport. Yeah, it, what, what in I, any sport. What I love is when it stops. You have the millionaires fighting the billionaires, the and yeah. the only audience they have are the people that the don't have class. anywhere near <laughs> exactly. that kind of money mm-hmm. trying to take sides in some issue. So we're the ones that suffer. And finally, California regulators ordered Uber to remove its self-driving vehicles from the road on the same day that the company's vehicles were caught running red lights. Violation the company immediately blamed on, quote, human error. There were people, wait, behind, wait, wait, wait. people behind the wheel did something. They grabbed the wheel, hit the gas, whatever, trying to make the red light. And so those people have been suspended. They're not oh, driving these cars okay. anymore. So, the, so the, they, hit, they did have the driverless cars but had a driver in them? Yes. The DMV okay. said it's illegal for Uber to operate the service without having uh, a permit to operate the autonomous vehicles on public roads. The AP reports Uber said it was aware of the permit, but since their self-driving car still had a person behind the wheel to intervene if necessary, they felt they didn't fit the definition of autonomous vehicle. Okay. Mm. So there was the problem. Some but California people, says they can get yeah, away with it. There was a big thing yesterday, like, you can go to San Francisco and get an autonomous Uber. And then later in the day, the car's been ordered off the road. Mm. Oh, <laughs> okay. So turn off turn off the robot and drive it in, okay? Yeah. yeah thanks, mm. Frank. That's the idea. <laughs> well, that's good news. Good news for Uber. They'll fix no, it. we're not going to do that. They'll fix it. Interesting. Wow. Well, you know, speaking of cars, uh, you know, we don't just run red lights in cars, but apparently people are still having babies in cars. (laughs) That's never going to (laughs) stop. Some excitement for one Illinois couple on Monday morning as a mother delivers her own baby on the way to the hospital. She delivered her own baby. Tanisha Rambert had been watching birthing videos during her pregnancy. 
but she didn't know how she would need to play she didn't know she would need to play doctor herself and her child she didn't know she would need to play doctor to herself and her child there we go 10 minutes after she and her husband marshall left the house to have their third child the couple welcomed little miller tanisha delivered him in the front seat of their ford escape Marshall called 911 and pulled off the highway where paramedics met them. At 6 pound 11 ounces, Miller Rambert is doing well despite being three days late and coming into this world in a very unconventional way. What was the husband doing? He didn't seem like he was much help. (laughs) She was the doctor. She delivered it. He was driving. No, I think it was an Uber, wasn't it? Oh, it was a Ford uh, Ford Escape. Yeah, sorry. Interesting. Terry, anything more interesting than uh, a baby being born in a car? Possibly. (laughs) We'll see how this goes. Uh, Facebook is talking with Hollywood Studios and other producers about licensing scripted, unscripted, and sports content. That means sitcoms, dramas, sporting events, and other types of programming could be coming to Facebook mobile app in the coming months. Ah. So kind of like what Amazon and Netflix are doing, but but on Facebook. But do they have the rights to do that? Uh, I believe that's what the negotiations are about. Okay. Trying to get rights. For now, Facebook is characterizing this as an experiment. The closest parallels of the company's recent payments to news organizations and other media companies to make live video, which helped to introduce Facebook Live to the public. Now Facebook is seeking pre-taped and scripted programming. So original oh. content or licensed content? Maybe a mix. Both. Probably, hmm. I would say probably go with, it, it, like you're saying, licensing would be easier if they had some sort of original content. Right. They just put sitcoms on Facebook instead of Well, so basically we're going to be able to watch Seinfeld on Facebook. Well, Let's, we can start yeah. the rumor now. Once so the Hulu contract runs out, right. it says is. The Facebook head of global creative strategy said in a statement, our goal is to kickstart an ecosystem of partner content for the tab, so we are exploring some funding, some uh, seed video content, including original licensed scripted, unscripted sports content that takes advantage of mobile and the social interaction unique to Facebook, you know, marketing stuff. Um, so <laughs> their problem is they have Facebook Live. So they paid all these right. news organizations to make videos. Right. Now, the videos needed to be something around the neighborhood of 10 minutes long. Well, Facebook Live, people aren't watching it enough. No, not that so long. So it's kind of failing and they're mm. trying to find a, they're trying to find video that somebody wants to watch i see right <laughs> to keep interest right and there's been some some instances like the chewbacca laughing yeah. mom wearing a mask mm-hmm. that one got a lot of views but when you oh. see those types of videos versus everything else it's no one's watching any of these videos to any great number well, so they're trying to build on, that up facebook you're you're missing out here you have, I mean, what is the greatest audience for videos on Facebook? Video games. Cat people. Oh, okay. Cat people. <sighs> you get cats to make videos and you're good. Mm, the cat channel. I yes. Guess. Only on Facebook. So, yeah, you might see a uh, scripted, unscripted, or sports content coming to you on your Facebook well, I mean, the, uh, didn't the NFL already have uh, games on Twitter this they, year? They've, they've, uh, yeah, as an experiment, they they mm-hmm. stream some things. I'm not sure if it really got the traction they wanted it to. So we'll yeah, see knows? how that works. Mm-hmm. It looked a lot of that was trying to experiment on how to present the the content or to provide content to a larger audience. And, and well, then how how do you present it? And then with Twitter, how do you present the social media angle mm-hmm. of it? And they, it looked all right if you watched it on, say, a laptop or a, a tablet. I don't okay. know how it looked on the phone. But uh, just the idea, you had, the, you had your, pit, your your screen you were watching, and below it you'd see your social media 
mm, people I talking see. about feed, the game. You had a feed right. lo- below it. Yeah. Okay. So that they were trying to experiment with that sort of formatting on the screen, and Facebook has done that also with some games. Hmm. But it's it's hard when you have a media feed that keeps rolling when you right. have a live mm. event hit somewhere. How do you make sure as yeah. many people even know what's going on? Yeah. You're, re- you're reading the feed and all of a sudden, touchdown! And you're like, what happened? So, yeah. Hey, by the way, I still have not seen that Chewbacca mom video. Don't you? Am I missing anything? No. No, she's laughing. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it changed people's lives apparently. So well, that's good. Mm-hmm. Chewbacca still having an impact on people's lives. Here's one more quick one before we go to our next guest. As any parent can tell you, walking over Legos with bare feet can be excruciating, but how it feels to roll around in them requires further clarification. One person who may be able to lend some insight, Jesse William Robert Jenkins, a 23-year-old Maryland man who was arrested Thursday after a scuffle involving several other people uh, details are scarce, but police say an argument broke out. Jenkins hurled someone onto the ground, and then a third person stepped in to break things up. And that person and Jenkins ended up on the floor and rolling around on top of a bunch of tiny plastic bricks. Ouch. Ooh. Jenkins was charged with second-degree assault and reportedly suffered injuries, though it's not clear what those injuries were. So he probably was rolling around on a Millennium Falcon Lego set. And uh, those things can be painful. If you're going to have a lot of them, you might as well make it a Death Star set. Come on. Oh, oh man. Any one of those Star Wars figurines would just kill. Well, it must have been a pretty affluent house because that's... <laughs> those things are expensive. <laughs> anyway... Just a lesson. If you're gonna, if you need to get in an argument and roll around on the ground, just take a second. Just have a timeout. Clear the area of all the Legos and sharp objects and animals. I, I think there can be a you know a five second rule where you have that moment of truce. That that's all right. And then once once that is over and you've cleared the area, then get back to your argument and roll around. Anyway. Just uh, just a tip, just an idea that you might want to consider the next time you uh, feel the need to get into a fight. Anyway, we will take a break. When we come back, we are going to continue this discussion of Christmas and how we can talk to our kids about Santa Claus and maybe some of the things that are appropriate and maybe not so appropriate when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who is away sick. He's got to stop getting sick. It's affecting Sean O'Neill, who has to keep waking up early and running the board for us. Exactly. I'm not waking up any earlier. I just have to come into work earlier. (laughs) Hey, no no judging. I'm not judging over here. My wife makes breakfast, and I don't. You could could wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I wouldn't judge you. Just so you know. Anyway, if speaking of kids, if you have kids listening to the program right now, if they're around you, if uh, they're going to be listening to this later, you may want to put on a YouTube video for them or get them out of the room, something, just that little disclaimer, because we are talking about Santa Claus and, uh, you know, whether or not he's real. But uh, some people say that 
Maybe he's not real. And some of you may remember being told that he's not real. Uh, When you found out, you might have been angry, sad, confused, or disappointed. Most children are told from the time that uh, they're young that if they are good, a jolly fat man in a red suit will bring them presents. But could perpetuating this myth as parents be harmful to our relationships with our children? We teach our kids not to lie, but is teaching them about Santa being hypocritical? Christopher Boyle, a psychologist and professor at the University of Exeter, says morality of making children believe in such myths has to be questioned. He joins us today from the United Kingdom to discuss the effects that perpetuating the Santa myth might have on our relationship with our kids. Uh, Welcome to the show, uh, Professor Boyle. Good morning, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Now, okay. I had to give that little disclaimer at the beginning because we wanted to make sure, well, <laughs> we just didn't want to get any calls. But, uh, you know, how how do we perpetuate this myth of Santa Claus at Christmas? How does this happen? That's um, a very a very interesting and wide-ranging question, and I, and I think it's, it's something that seems to be in existence for, for quite a period of time, and it seems to be also that as we move from childhood to adulthood, it becomes a sort of collective responsibility and a necessity that um, a lot of people um, decide to perpetuate the, this idea of Santa Claus. And, um, it, it seems to it seems to be one of these um, one of these one of the aspects of of uh, child and adult relationships. It's not really questioned. It's almost like we carry the mantle um, from generation to generation. Now, do you happen to remember how old you were or where you were when you were told that Santa Claus was not real? Yeah, well, Jeff, I I remember it very, very vividly. <laughs> and uh, I I remember hearing it in, in school assembly that uh, someone who was older um, turned around and, and said, we must have been ta- it must have been close to Christmas and we must have been talking about it. And this older boy said, oh, it's Santa, it's just your parents. Oh, that's terrible! Um, in an assembly, yeah, yeah. wow! In assembly, and and so of course I heard that, and I thought, but I can't remember if I actually was already questioning. It. Obviously, there was general discussion, but this this guy turned around, and the, the guy he wasn't he wasn't being malicious or anything like that. He just said it, and I was. It's funny because because I wrote this essay, I've been thinking about it quite a lot more. And I thought I was maybe nine or ten, but when I was thinking back. I reckon I was um, around about eight, so I was actually younger than I thought. And the reason I remember that is because I moved house around about that time, and I remember being aware that Santa wasn't real when I was in this previous house. So I was actually younger than I thought. I think so. I think around about eight. But I do also remember um, when I asked my parents, which was directly related. Uh, to that event where I, I remember going in, and it's funny how I have such a, a powerful memory of this at, at such a, a reasonably young age. And I went into my into my um, into the living room in the house, and I, I asked my my father. Um, I, I just said something like, "Is Santa Claus real?" And he was watching television, and he said to, he shush he shushed me. That was his reaction, as in shoot, because obviously he didn't want to answer the question. Oh, that's and, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like that, which is normal, you know, uh, be quiet because the television's on, I'm watching an important program. That was that was the way it was. And <laughs> I remember my mum, my mother, took me into the kitchen and she was crying. 
and she told me she told me the truth and she said um you know i had a younger brother who was three years younger now and then and then i was told the secret you know and, and the myth okay but don't don't ruin it for your for your brother and that that christmas i remember being awake at night and hearing all the presents getting dragged down the stairs from from my dad, I think it was taking them down, and yeah. and for me at that point the magic had sort of uh, gone a little bit. Well, that's an interesting tactic of your dad. I never thought of that. Just you know, when they ask you point blank, oh, what, what's that? Oh, I think I heard the phone ring. Yeah, I, let me go get that. <laughs> so, uh, you know. A lot of people might not see this as lying to our children when we perpetuate this this uh, myth that Santa Claus is real. How yeah, this obviously had an impact on you, or at least you remember it very vividly when and and how it all went down. How can lying about Santa Claus harm a parent child relationship? Well, again, that's that's an interesting question, and. When I, I wrote this, it, it was an essay, so it's a bit of musing rather than actual uh, actually being based on research. And there's no evidence um, that it directly harms uh, children as such. But I think that the question that I was putting out along with my co-author was, was more about just, OK, we, we do this without really thinking about it. And it was just it was just bringing it to the fore a little bit. But since, since that article has been published and it's received an incredible amount of uh, publicity around the world, and I've had various people emailing me, and there's, there's quite a few that have said that, you know, that it was quite, um, it, maybe harmful is um, a strong word, but um, they, were, they were affected by it and they were, they were quite upset by it when they found out. And I remember um, one person wrote to me um, saying that they, they def- when they were in school, they defended, um, they defended San- the, the idea that Santa was real because the, the justification in that person's eyes was that my parents wouldn't lie to me. Oh, so, Wow. Yeah, so that was yeah, that so that I thought that was quite interesting because that person defended that my parents don't lie to me. And that that of course is an anecdote. It's just it's just one person, but uh, I thought that that's quite an interesting aspect. It's almost like if you try and defend because parents shouldn't be lying to the children. That's we we generally agree in that, but of course there is myth and you know there is there are different aspects where we do we do tell um, small lies or white lies, you know, you can imagine it's on a continuum. And down at the um, down at the bottom end, say, it is regarded as acceptable under certain circumstances. So what are, yeah, speaking of being acceptable, what are, what do you think are some of the benefits of perpetuating this myth? Well, there's, there's good, you're full of, Jeff, you're full of uh, very, very good questions this morning. <laughs> So I think the the advantages of perpetuating it, you know, I think for a lot of people, Christmas is a is a very nice time. For other people, of course, it, it might not be, but for for many people, it is. Uh, it's a nice period uh, where you, you you spend time with with your friends, with your family. People are generally in a good mood. They're certainly um, in a much better mood than January over in the UK. I'm not sure about about the US, but in the UK, January is quite a dark month. You know, and most people don't have much money, so yeah. Christmas, Christmas, leading up to Christmas is, is a nice period, and believing in that that little bit of magic for Christmas seems to be um, 
it's, it's, it's reasonably healthy from from that point of view. But of course, the the, the magic magic stops. The magic ends when when the truth comes out. And I think the the point the point was about is is it acceptable to to let children believe this and and um, defend it for quite a while, and then eventually they've got to find that out. Yeah, you know, and you mentioned the magic and. As a parent, I'm I'm very interested in in creating these experiences that my child that my children will remember for their entire lives. You know, and there obviously there are more some Christmases that are more memorable than others, depending on what gifts that we got and and uh, whether or not I still believed in Santa Claus at that at that point. Um, but yeah, even even from a a perspective of not lying to your children. I think Disneyland is another example of that, where the, you go as a young kid and it's just this magical experience. And then, you know, you you go through puberty and you're a teenager and, you know, things aren't as magical as they used to be. And then once you start having kids again and taking them back to Disneyland, that's when the magic starts coming back into your life. And I, I feel like it's this, a same uh, situation with with Santa Claus, you know that maybe there's a period where that magic fades out, but then even as an adult, that magic can come back into your life by by helping your kids believe in Santa Claus. Anyway, um, you mentioned obviously this might be something that could be beneficial, especially for kids that maybe don't have a lot of money. I it's interesting. I was driving in the car yesterday, and the song "Here Comes Santa Claus" was on. And I thought of the lyric, uh, he doesn't care if you're rich or poor, he loves you just the same. And I remember thinking in my head, yeah, except if you're richer, you're going to get much better gifts. (laughs) Yeah, and I think... uh, So what what kind of an impact does it have on... What's the... How does it help with people that may not have so much money versus people that are a little more well-off? Well, I think that's... um, that is again an interesting aspect because um, you know you get the same guess rich or poor as you, as you suggested in that song, and of course that is complete garbage. And you know you, the the type of presents that you get from from Santa is usually totally dependent on on the wealth of your family or your your friends. But the the issue then is that Santa Claus is is not equitable and. You would think that with with the spirit of Christmas and the spirit of Santa Claus, everyone should be getting presents according to the their own social um, social economic situation. So if if you don't, if for for some reason your parents are not earning as as much money or they don't have as much money at that particular Christmas time, then um, Santa should be able to provide um, that gap. But of course, as, as you have correctly said it, it doesn't seem to be like that at all and, and I mentioned in the essay that Santa is definitely not equitable and Santa is clearly clearly not a socialist and that and you wonder if um, children eventually start to realize or maybe start to question how come um, the presence that I get from from this other person who's got nothing to do with my family um, is, is better or are better or aren't better than than my friends so Santa is sounds like he's not an equal opportunity giver. <laughs> yeah, well, you think if if um, if we were creating if we were creating this myth now, I think that that would definitely be an issue, and I think we would definitely be making sure that Santa Claus had 
uh, was fu was fully conversant with the equal opportunities um, aspects or the equity aspects of uh, of the various policies that we have. Yeah, let, you know, this is such an interesting topic. And when we come back, let's take a quick break here. When we come uh, come back, Christopher, I want to talk to you a little bit more about maybe how some ideas on how we can talk to our children. Uh, let's do that. Let's take a quick break. We're speaking with Christopher Boyle, who uh, has written an article about the myth of Santa Claus and, and how we should talk to our children. He's a psychologist and professor at the University of Exeter, and we'll continue the discussion when we come back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away. And uh, his loss is our gain because we are talking about Santa Claus this morning and maybe the myth of Santa Claus and how we could talk to our children whether or not we uh, we want to, to share that myth with them. Anyway, we are speaking with Christopher Boyle, who is a psychologist and professor at the University of Exeter. And before the break, we were talking about the benefits and maybe some of the drawbacks from uh, perpetuating this myth. And uh, we also mentioned how maybe Santa Claus is not an equal opportunity giver. So, Christopher, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Jeff. So, okay, there there are a couple of different ways to look at this issue, I feel. So, Let's say, and I'm I'm one of these parents, let's say that we want our children to believe in Santa Claus. Is there a healthy way of perpetuating this myth that, uh, that won't scar or psychologically damage our children in any way? There's um, a, very, a very direct question. And I think, you know, each, each parent has a particular bond with their child, and, and each parent will be um, will be much better at advising as to whether they, they perpetuate the myth and, and how exactly they perpetuate the myth. I've had people um, talk to me about that if, if the child is, is talking about, the child is asking about it, you know, and they, and they say, well, if, if you believe, you know, it's, a, it's about belief and it's about believing, and if you do that, then that's fine. You, you can do that. And some, so, so, and some parents will also be much more involved as in they'll really go into the story and you know really go for it and other parents are a bit more standoff some some parents have also um wrote to me and said that they don't actually um talk about it at all they don't tell the child that um santa is real they they leave it and just let the child um continue without that but what they do say is that they, they tell the child to not um destroy it or not take it away from other children say say in school for example so, so I think it's it's a very very hard um, question to answer generally because each person has a very very different relationship with a child, and for some people it's very important to have these sort of um, beliefs about um, Santa or about other uh, other beings, you know, the tooth fairy, anything like that. That's part of it. it's part of the myth, and, it, and it's and it's important. Whereas other parents don't see it as as necessary. Yeah, and you know there are a lot of parents out there that 
that will keep this alive to varying degrees. You know, one of our producers here mentioned how um, her dad would get up on the roof so that they could hear footsteps, you know, footsteps making you believe that there were reindeer up there. And, uh, you know, I'm just curious, are there, do you have any examples other than the one that you shared earlier about the boy who said, well, my Santa has to be real because my parents would never lie to me. Do you have any examples of, of how this could be harmful, you know, to, for them to go along with this for so long and then all of a sudden realize that it's not true? Well, I think I think that is the crux of the of the whole issue. I think it's when the child starts to question it and starts to realise him and herself that there's 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 some issues with with what's been um, what's been put forward as as a um, as a thesis by the parents. And it's also, you know, I think it was Dawkins that was talking about it's health. It can become healthy scepticism in a way to actually query. Uh, different aspects. So when children find that this absolute, what they would have regarded as an absolute truth, isn't true at all, and the parents have been perpetuating a myth or they have been lying, depends how you want to look at it. And it, and and I suppose each child will will react in a different way. And I have had um, people tell me that it that it was terrible when they found out. It was really quite awful. But that, you know. You know what it's like, Jeff, because you, you end up getting people that, that email you that are at extreme ends of the, the spectrum. Also, yeah. It's the same when you, when you do surveys where you get, unless you're careful, you get people who've got you know, an axe to grind or they're a bit, they're a bit of a, a zealot. But um, in the middle, you probably find that there's, there's very little harm from that, really, you know, across, across the population. But I think the, the, the crucial aspect is when, when the child starts to figure it out them themselves, then I think that's the point where you have to think, yeah, it's, it's sort of coming to an end naturally. Yeah. Because the other aspect is now, um, compared to maybe when you and I were growing, were growing up, there, there wasn't as so much access. There wasn't as much access to information. It was very. Whereas now you can go online and you can immediately find out information, such as what we're talking about, very very quickly. So there's much. I would imagine, um, and and this is part of some of the research we're looking to do here at Exeter over the next year, is to try and look at what age children are when they, when they find this out, what age they are mm. when when their parents tell them, because it'd be really interesting to to find it out, because it's always an interesting point, and I think. Um, pe- most people find out between maybe seven and nine, and, ju- and that's just speaking to different people that that I know. And I, I don't know about yourself, uh, Jeff. What what age what age you were? You know, I I don't remember. All I remember is that gradually over time, my parents would start coming out earlier and earlier to put the presents out, but they still oh, wouldn't yeah. want us to see them bringing out the yeah. presents. But you could yeah. hear the trash bags full of presents yeah. and the walking yeah. down the hall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so I think um, just just going back to that, Jeff. I think the the point is when when, you, when your child actually. Um, ask you, you know, the question is, is Santa, is Santa real or, or something like that. I think that's the point where you have to may, maybe just acknowledge that it's, that that's it. You know, it's, it's gone, you know, it's, it's finished. It's, you know, that era of Santa Claus is probably ended. But because when people have been um, writing to me, it seems to be that's, that's the point they're making more than anything else is that when they actually ask their parents, then if they perpetuate that at that point, that's when, you know, maybe they, they lose a bit of faith with 
with what the, the parents are telling them, whereas it seems that that's a natural end point for it. You know, if a child um, suddenly finds out, you know, their parents, they've not been, they've not been good at Christmas, you know, following on from that, they've not been good, at, they've not been good leading up to Christmas, and the parents say, well, that's it, you're not getting any presents. And by the way, Santa Claus doesn't exist anyway. So then you're talking about um, quite vindictive, quite harmful, quite harmful situation. But the natural, the natural ending, I think, is is the easy one for parents to to look out for. Yeah. Well, Christopher Boyle, thank you so much for being on the program with us this morning. Uh, we've enjoyed speaking with you about Santa Claus and, and speaking to our children about that and how that may have an impact on them. And thanks for all your research that you do. Uh, he is a psychologist and professor at the University of Exeter. And like I said, we've been talking about the myth of Santa Claus. Hopefully, again, there are no kids listening right now. If If you are hoping to keep that magic alive... We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who is once again sick. I think it's something in the water here at BYU Radio. Anyway, let's head on over to a couple of our friends who are not sick. Spencer and Jerem, how are you two doing? Uh, great, because Rogue One comes out today, baby. Oh, Whoa. Yeah, we, we have Whoa. lightsabers we in have the studio. We have lightsabers in our hands. Are those real? I mean... You're not I, just playing a sound listen effect. Listen, tell you, me this isn't real. Ooh. <laughs> Careful. Watch out for your hand. Watch out for your hand. But yeah, it sounds like you're getting a haircut over there. Taysom Hill, look out. Not again. <laughs> Are you going to see it tonight? Uh, I'm actually going tomorrow morning. I'll be traveling this evening, this afternoon. Tomorrow morning? I'm going to be able to I'm not going to be. I'm, I'm off the show tomorrow. Tonight. Yeah. I'm driving to San Diego with the fam. So, so I'll be off tomorrow. You're so skipping tomorrow. the show to go see Star Wars yeah. under the guise of a San Diego trip. In Vegas tomorrow. Oh. I might go tonight just by myself. My wife doesn't know this. Hmm. Uh, don't spoil anything if you do. Yeah. Did you know that... Uh, uh, the... <laughs> I see. I'll put it away. So wait, I think you're doing a spoiler right now. I didn't know there were going to be any lightsabers in this movie. Darth Vader's in the movie, Jeffrey. Oh. Oh, Sean O'Neill, who has seen the movie, says that there's one lightsaber. I don't want to know anything. Oh. So please tell Sean to please. That was a lie. That was a lie. We can dump that. I'm I'm coming on mic right now. (laughs) I'm coming up there. Sean, what do you think? You don't mess with a guy with a lightsaber. Jared's oh my number goodness. one pet peeve is the revelation of any secrets in a movie he has not seen. Oh, oh, how can I do this? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sean Sean also Sean also says that you're gonna want to stick around for all three post credit scenes. Okay. Jeremy generally does that. Count them three. Be quiet. I don't want to know anything. (laughs) Then I'm going to sit there the whole time and there's none. (laughs) So you're probably not going to the movie tonight because you're going to the BYU broadcasting party. Is that right? No, I'm traveling. Oh, Oh, that's right. I I won't be there tonight. Okay. Well. Give me my leather-bound book and gift and I will say thank you very much to this wonderful, wonderful BYU broadcast. Would you like me to save some prime rib for you? 
It sounds delicious. Okay. It? All right. There's plenty of prime rib in Vegas, baby. Well, anyway, really quickly, in case you are going to the BYU broadcasting dinner tonight, which you're not, uh, three yeah. things to say to a person when you have nothing to say. Mm. So you might meet a lot of people there tonight that yeah, yeah, you yeah. don't know or you know them, but you just don't have anything to say to them. How about no, Merry Christmas, not. Happy Holidays, It's Great to Have You Here at the Party. How about this Ooh. weather? See, but that took you like five seconds to blow right through all of those. Well, generally that will incite some conversation. Yeah. Oh, you, How much oh, do you know about Mosaic Law? Okay, That's so you, you gave us three things to say to a person when you don't want to incite a conversation. I see. How about uh, if you've never met somebody, what keeps you busy? Oh, yeah, okay. What keeps mm-hmm. you busy? Yes. That's an interesting question. Okay, here's another one. Uh, if you do already know each other, catch me up. Catch me up. Catch me up. I like I like saying what are the what are the, what are the top headlines in your life right now? <laughs> like newsy. Okay, and if the conversation is just one sided, you can say yes and interesting. <laughs> hmm. Like, no, I I think I, huh? Wow, that's overrated. Well, see you later. Yeah. <laughs> Little dumb and dumber there for you. Yes. So what, since you're not going to the party tonight, what can you talk to us about? What are the three things that we should know about from your show today? Yeah, well, I'll be there, but Jerem, since you're not going to be there, you do this. We are going to discuss the following in the spirit of Rogue Cat- One coming out tonight. Catch me up on what's going to happen on your show this morning. Yeah. In honor of Rogue One, what BYU athletes or coaches would you compare to which Star Wars characters? Ooh. Yeah, that's our trending topic today. There's, there's not a lot going on, so we're going Star Wars. It's going to be awesome. Plus, Steve Cleveland, President, Chancellor, Coach Steve Cleveland will uh, break down the win against Colorado, the big game against Illinois for BYU Men's Hoops coming up Saturday. And Tim McComb, uh, Associate Head Coach of BYU Men's Basketball, will be in studio. Mm. Man, that sounds and like David a good Omadova. show. I and David more about lightsaber. David. And more lightsaber. So it's a Star Wars, <laughs> Star Wars heavy show. So, Jerem, since I'm not going to be able to talk to you tonight, um, what keeps you busy? Sorry, what was that? I was what putting keeps my you busy, Jerem? What, what keeps you busy? The lightsaber. This program. It's the lightsaber. <laughs> the saber of light. Yes, and I like watching movies. Like I will. I oh, reading books. So we've already covered all three of the things. Yeah. That not his that family, I didn't. His daughter. I'm reading. Yeah, I thought those were assumed. Uh, killing Pablo. I'm reading that about Pablo Ooh. Escobar. Not that I didn't have anything to say to you, but yeah. I just wanted to yeah. cover all the topics. Yeah, yeah. To make sure that we're good. What keeps you busy, Jeff? Uh, this program, unfortunately, not lightsabers. I don't have one of those. Sorry, what did you say? <laughs> oh. Why? All right. Why, Jarrah? Who gave Jerem the lightsaber? I think that's your thing to do when you don't have anything to say. You just <laughs> is it blue? Slip on the lightsaber. It is blue. Okay. Awkward conversation. Hit it. <laughs> I have the green one. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, go have a good show, and hopefully you're going to talk on your show about who shot first. Yeah. Anyway, knock him <laughs> yeah. dead. Lexington. Thanks, sir. Thanks guys. <sighs> you know. Just because you have something doesn't mean that you need to use it all that much. Look, sounds like Santa came early to BYU Sports Nation. No, that's not fair. You know, I guess I could I, – I can understand why he would do that. You spend the money on something. 
you want to get the best bang for your buck. Mm-hmm. Like we have a jacuzzi. Sometimes I feel like we're losing money on it if I'm not out there every night. Oh, I understand. Even though it came with the house that we bought. I understand. Do you have a jacuzzi? I uh, had. Oh. My parents did in, in the past, but okay. yes. Mm-hmm. Do you have a lightsaber? No. Hmm. So you and I are both clearly deprived. Yes. Well, you have the hot tub, though. And I don't. Maybe I need to go over there and borrow it from, from him because he brought up a good point. That is a great conversation starter. You got that right. Use it tonight at the party. Yeah. I couldn't help but notice that uh, you're carrying a lightsaber. May I ask what color it is? Have you ever used it on anyone? Mm-hmm. Uh, how many lightsabers are in the new Star Wars film? I won't spoil it by giving it away, but Sean I'll, placed a number okay. of fingers up. Uno. I'll, I did right. it in another language. So, so that's yeah. totally good. There you go. Okay. Well, I feel equipped and ready and prepared for the company party tonight, and I know what to say. So just, again, we're going to recap those in case you have a company party or a family reunion. You're getting together with people that maybe you don't really have anything to say to them. Number one. If you've never met the person, so maybe this is a higher up at your office, what keeps you busy? (laughs) Number two, if you do already know the person, catch me up. Hey, we haven't talked for a while. What's 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 great about this is that it's these seem like the lazy man's questions. Oh, definitely. You know, like you do all the talking, but I don't want it to. I don't want to make it seem like you. I want you to do all the talking. So just these are these are the lines you use in a movie when you don't know what to say and you want the other person to say something. Exactly. And then if the conversation is one sided, yes, and. So to keep the conversation alive, follow the golden rule in improvisational comedy, affirm whatever the other person says, and then add something to it. There you go. All right. So use those. Don't use them. But uh, it's going to come up the next time you're at a party. I can guarantee it this Christmas. Anyway, as you know, we like to end the show with a hero story, and today's another great one. An anonymous donor drove up to the private Catholic school in Ohio around Monday and bought up every single remaining Christmas tree from the school's annual fundraiser. The donor then left the trees behind, so anyone who needed a tree could pick one up for free. Principal Kyla Walton doesn't know how much the donor paid, and the generous benefactor didn't leave his name. She said the dozens of trees left on the lot Monday night were priced at $40 and $50 each. The sale proceeds are split between the Knights of Columbus Council, a charitable Catholic fraternity, and the St. Mary Home and School Association, which provides St. Mary School with classroom supplies, buses for field trips, and other support. The tree sale has been an annual event for more than 40 years. The donor who showed up Monday simply declared as he paid the Knights of Columbus volunteer that anyone in need could haul away some holiday cheer. Walton's Facebook post announcing the donation around 6 p.m. Monday People showed up in droves overnight to get trees. Before 10 a.m. Tuesday, the Virgin Mary statue on the side of the school gazed out over a a nearly vacant lot littered with some random evergreen boughs. Wow, what a great story. Buying up a bunch of Christmas trees and then anonymously giving them away. That is a Christmas hero. Great work. And just another example of how you can be a hero this holiday season. You don't have to spend a lot of money. You can be a hero to people in other ways. 
And we encourage you to go out and find those ways to be a hero yourself this Christmas. There is a need. There is such a big need this Christmas. Go out and find it and fill it. That's going to do it for this episode of the Matt Townsend Show. Hopefully, we'll be back with Dr. Matt tomorrow. In the meantime, go have a great day and be a hero. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll talk tomorrow.